Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Welcome to The Disruptive Entrepreneur. I bet you can recognize this man here. We're very excited to be with Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie, thanks for doing the interview. No, great to be here, Rob, you know. Um, yeah, it's been good getting to know you and through Pete Cohen and stuff like that. So, yeah, find, finally we meet and get to chat. Yeah, likewise. So I know you're interested in a, in a lot more things than snooker. Yeah. And I know you're often keen to talk about them. Yeah. Running, you know, obviously the health and fitness has been a big part. You've written a lot of books. Mm. So let's start with that. Talk about your non-snooker related interests and what you love to do. Yeah, I think I've kind of got that like restlessness sort of gene in me sometimes. You know, if I do the same thing for too long, I kind of just get a little bit bored. So I've always found that the best way to, for me to get through stuff is just to have loads of little distractions going on. And, you know, whenever one's kind of getting a bit sort of uh, boring, if you like, then I've always got something quickly to replace that little bit of excitement. It's like, I think I've got, I need a little bit of adrenaline or something, some bit of chaos going on just to keep me going, you know, keep me on my toes. So I found doing different things and not just anything, but just stuff that I'm interested in and that I'm passionate about. Uh, the more I can kind of incorporate that into my life, the better my life is really. So, uh, and it gives you more options as well. You know, you're not just one dimensional. Yeah. And do you think that actually inadvertently helped longevity of your snooker career? Because at times when you might have wanted to go, I don't want to do this, yeah. you had other things in your life to fall back on. Yeah, I think if, if I never had all the other things sort of going on in the background, I probably wouldn't be playing snooker on the tour because it's, it's a bit of a, you know, it's, it's a tough life. Uh, the rewards are not fantastic. And you kind of just think, oh, and you get, you, all we've got is time. And for me, it's like, you know, I, I need to make make most of that time and you know I'm quite selfish in what I want to do so like if I want to run keep fit or spend time with friends I would always do that over work you know so for me it kind of it's, it's enabled me to kind of enjoy a snooker as a, and, and treat it more like a hobby although it's when I say a hobby, most people think, well, a hobby is like, you know, it's something you do away from your work. But for me, um, I've got to that point now where I, I love to play and I love to compete and I love to see where I'm at against my other competitors. And that's the buzz. It's, um, I remember one guy once said, I'm married and I've, I've got this wonderful wife. And he's, he was an attractive guy to the other, the opposite sex. He's opposite sex. And he said, I just get a buzz out of knowing that I could probably get it on with her. And I, and I think I'm a little bit like that with snooker. I get a buzz out of knowing that if I really wanted to, I could dominate whoever there is that happens to be playing the game. And I think that's a kind of, it's a nice buzz, you know, and uh, I like to keep that. So I've got a little toolbox and I like to keep that toolbox, that, that tool sharpened. So just in case I decide to get excited about playing, it, it, it's kind of there and, and, and I could perform, you know. Hey, it's Rob again and I need to own up to something. Entrepreneurs don't celebrate enough. I bet you don't. I know I don't. And we went through the five year anniversary of the Disruptive Entrepreneur, which is a massive achievement. And the 600th episode, which again, how many podcasts have done 600 episodes? And we didn't even celebrate. So I want to celebrate the 600th episode and the five-year anniversary with you. We have something new and special that I think you're going to love. Now, many of you who listen, you're on my Facebook supporter program. You get 10 pieces of content with me as a bonus over and above what the general public get. We have supporter-only meetups, socials, dinners. I do Ask Me Anythings every sort of two weeks or so live. We do Make Cash and social media challenges. You get discounts. You get to come to events and you get premium ticket upgrades and so much more. But what I've done 
to celebrate the five-year anniversary, the 600th episode, is actually created a decentralized platform called Rob.team. Many of you don't use Facebook. We're in a, a more modern decentralized age now. So if you go right now to Rob.team, www.rob.team, you can join my supporter and Rob.team program. You can choose whether you enroll on Facebook or the non-native decentralized platform that I've built specially for you. And for just five pounds or $5 a month, cancel any time you get 10 premium pieces of content from me you don't get anywhere else, deep dive content. You get supporter and team only meetups, socials and dinners throughout the year. A two weekly Ask Me Anything Live that I don't do in any public situation anymore. We do seven day challenges about five times a year, make cash challenges, social media challenges. You get premium ticket upgrades, special discounts. I have um, three Facebook account managers. We often have Zoom meetings with them and then we update you sort of from the horse's mouth live um, what they shared with us. Um, whenever we do events and webinars, we never do replays or recordings. But as a supporter and team member, you get those free. You get an extra 10% discount off any of my trainings. And get this, if you're one of the first 60, I can't do 600, you'll see why. Then I'm actually going to do a 15 minute one to one personal call with you. And if you're one of the first 256, I've just set up a brand new Rob.team uh, WhatsApp group where you'll get my mobile number and you know we can share strategies and tactics together. So go right now to www.rob.team. That's www.rob.team. First 50, get a 15 minute one-to-one -one call with me. Um, I'm gonna do that after your first month subscription and I, you know it's gonna take me a bit of time to do that, but I'll do it, I'll, I'm a man of my word. And the first 256, you get into the Rob.team supporters only WhatsApp group. There's loads of bonuses in there. This program has been running for two years. My six stage, seven figure launch formula, which was a paid for course, it's in there. How to write a best selling book course is in there. PAVA and social media manager and brand manager documents and job descriptions are in there. Marketing KPIs documents are in there. How to dramatically increase your fees. The book I'm writing, the up to date version is in there. There's so much content, it's only £5 or $5 a month. Uh, and I'm adding this new platform, Rob.team, to celebrate the fifth year anniversary and the 600 episodes. And first 60, 15 minute one-to-one -one call with me, first 256, get into the um, exclusive WhatsApp group. So be quick, go now, because we have millions of subscribers and downloads and views a week now for the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show across all platforms. So see you there at www.rob.team, go now. Great. So I thought we'd try something a bit different today yeah. and do sort of like three rounds. Okay. So round one will be all your non-snooker related interests. Okay. Round two will be the snooker related yeah. world. And then we'll do quick fire towards the end. Although not one of those one word answer interviews. No, I know. No, no, no. <laughs> this isn't the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> so um, running. I know running's huge for you. Yeah. Um, and you've, I mean, you've written quite a few books and yet none of them seem to be on snooker. So writing and snooker, writing and running seem to be two big interests for you. Yeah. Um, running was just a, I, I just kind of like fell into it accidentally, if you like. I, I never liked running and I, I kind of still don't really. I always kind of get this fear that um, I dread the thought of having to go out and do a, like a, a hard track session. Going for a little plod around the forest, I can kind of just, you know, it's not too bad. So it's, it's never been something, but, I, but it's been so good to me over the years that it's really hard for me to turn my back on it. You know, I kind of, I love the community, uh, 
aspect of running, you know, it's probably one of the only things that when you turn up to meet other runners, like no one's interested in what you do for 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 a job or career. It's just about you know that gets dropped at the door and you just put your trainers on, you go out, and it's a great social sort of way. And, and most probably ninety nine point nine point nine percent of runners are just really not materialistic people either. So for me, it's great to be around as many of them type of people as I can because in my world and and in and in a lot of this Western world, it is kind of like um, you know a lot of people seem to. It's like a social climbing sort of world that you can kind of get caught up in, which I, I don't really like. So for me, it just kind of gets me away from that part of life that I don't like and, and, and into more of the life that I do like, you know. Yeah. So running's been massive, yeah. Running's, running's huge for me. I, I had 10 years where I couldn't really run properly either. So that was kind of like difficult because I had a lot of injuries and yeah, I had a lot going on in my personal life. So I kind of like... I kind of didn't really do much of it, but obviously since the lockdown happened, gymnasiums was closed. Um, there wasn't much you could do really other than just exercise outside. So one of my friends, Eric, who I kind of lost contact really for 10 years. Uh, I phoned him. I said, look, you know, I'm a bit of a loose end here. I've got a, a lot of time on my, <laughs> on my hands, you know. So he said, come, we'll go for a run over the forest. We'll go nice and easy. And uh, I think it took me an hour to do five miles. And I was like, oh, really? I mean, I used to do five miles in 27 minutes. And now it's taking me we an hour. We all used to, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, it was like 10 years ago as well. And I was thinking, like, I can't imagine being able to run five miles in 30 minutes again, you know. And, and here I am, like, five miles in an hour. So I was like, wow. But just slowly and slowly, I just kind of just um, just stuck at it. And the times, you know, got a little bit faster. And, you know, so I felt a little bit better about myself. And I always like to say, for me, now running has to be about the benefits of running because, obviously, you know, snooker can be quite mental, mentally exhausting. And I kind of always like to... You know, I look around at a lot of snooker players, you know, because I live on the tour and you see people's lives and, you know, I don't talk to them all the time, but you can always, you always get a feeling of what a guy is up to in his life, you know, and, and I think a lot of snooker players have to have an addiction to kind of cope with playing snooker because it can be really quite a mentally de demanding sport and, you know, some people drink, food, gamble, um, they play computer games and it's just a way of kind of just trying to sort of cope with the demands, if you like, of, of being a professional snooker player. For me, running and keep fit was that addiction, you know. So, mm. um, yeah, running has is, is been massive for me and, you know, I owe a lot to it. And, uh, yeah, and hopefully I can just keep going now. I'm 45 and I feel the fittest I have for 10 years. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, no, I'm really, um, yeah, I'm a huge sort of health health freak if you like you know i was i was i was i was so unhealthy for so long maybe from you know when i was like 10 up to like 25 that i think you know i've kind of like it's like benjamin button i'm doing it the opposite <laughs> way around you know i've kind of like started getting into keep fit later whereas in my early part of my life i was hamburgers chips tomato ketchup <laughs> down the <laughs> snooker club you know put on a bit of weight but i could play snooker so um, yeah. Yeah, but um, I think after I come out of the priory, I realised that, you know, I've got this addictive nature and it's up to me now how... I'm not. I'm never going to get rid of that addiction and I always like to think it's a good driving force in my life. So, you know, as long as I channel it into the right direction, then with that, like that, that, that sort of drive, if you like, you know, you can do pretty good things, you know? Mm.
Just want to pick up on one thing. I know I said the snooker would be the second round, mm. but it was interesting you said about the demands of snooker. Mm. And some people who don't get the sport might look at it and go, well, you're just walking around a table potting balls. It's not exactly very exerting. So mm. can you give us a bit of a flavour for the demands that snooker puts on you? Yeah, because it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a lonely sport. You know, you're, uh, you're on the road a lot. It's, 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 it's a really, it's quite a technical sport as well. Um, you're... You're also sitting in your chair a lot. So when you're sitting in your chair and your opponent's at the table, there is nothing you can do. So you have a lot of time to think, you know, and, and it's, how, it's what you do with that thinking time which kind of determines how you do when you do eventually get back to the table. Uh, so, you know, I think sometimes being blessed with too much talent in sport, not just snooker, can not be a good thing because you kind of end up getting a bit lazy and relying on talent to get you through. And, and I kind of done that for most of my career. And it wasn't until I, I started working with Ray Reed and people like Steve Peters that I started to appreciate that, you know, for me to become as good as I am today, I needed to work on them other areas because if things were going well for me, then it was great. But if it wasn't, I was like, oh, I don't want to get out of here, pack my bags, I can be home Thursday, do a bit of running Friday, Saturday, lovely, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and that was me giving up, if you like, you know, not giving up, but me just saying, I just, I just haven't got the fight in me. And, um, and I think, yeah, the demands of snooker can be tough, you know, because it's quite a lonely, mental, a lot of technique is involved. And then, and then also you, you're, you're watching some players that make the game look really easy and that can be quite demoralizing in itself so then you start to to compare yourself to others you know which is which is not a good thing to do because you know um it depends who you're comparing yourself against if you compare yourself against someone that's not as good then it's a good thing but if you're comparing yourself to someone like john higgins you know you're never going to feel good about your game because for me he's the most complete snooker player so it's just being careful with the thoughts that you're allowed to come in your head, really. So, um, yeah, I just think it's, it's a tough sport in, in a way, you know. Mm. What really interests me is probably nearly every other snooker player might look at you and go, you make the game look really easy. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think I, I obviously I do, you know. And I, I was like, sometimes you sit there and you wonder what it is about me and certain people in sport that make people want to watch you play. And, and, and in some ways... You know, you, you kind of get the impression that uh, why do I stand out from every other snooker player? Why does Messi stand out from every other footballer? Why does Roger Federer stand out from Djokovic and Nadal? And and it, it can't be because of they've achieved more in the game. I just think it's the way that they do it. So if you watch Federer play tennis, you think it's really different to how Nadal and Djokovic play, you know, and, and you watch Messi play football, and you think, well, it, no one plays like that, you know, everyone, everyone's, it's like a physical sport, you know, whereas when Messi does it, it's like a, it's like a dance, it's like a rhythm, it's like, you know, and Federer's the same, and I think probably I'm the same in snooker, it's like, you know, my, my records are great, um, but no better than Stephen Hendry's, not much better than John Higgins, um, but I just think people, when they watch me play, they go, you know, nobody does it like that. You know, it's a bit like Muhammad Ali in boxing. It's like you can watch all the heavyweights you like, you know, but when you watch Muhammad Ali, you're like, wow, this, this guy makes the sport look different. You know, and I think probably that's the, the thing that's um, kind of why the snooker fans, if you like, have really taken to me over the years. You know, that's, that's the only thing I can put it down to, really. Mm. And if you could summarise how you play the game differently to anyone else 
How would you do that? I think what it is is, is that I don't rely on power. I don't rely on putting mad balls. I don't rely on, you know, playing long safety battles. My game is all around, you know, controlling that cue ball. And, you know, I'm very rarely, you know, like they always say, if you can be that far from your next ball, then every pot should be easy. It's when the white's that far away that the pots become missable. And I think most people that have played the game realise how difficult it is just to pot a ball, let alone try and get on the next ball. But when you're potting a ball and I'm getting on the next ball really close, I think a lot of people just go, wow, that's that's really not easy to do. And, and you probably wouldn't appreciate that unless you actually played on a full-size table. So I think my, I wouldn't say I was the best potter in the world. I'm not the best safety player in the world. I'm probably not the best at anything, you know, in any, any area. But what I am good at is getting that white ball from A to B and, and, and making the game easy, if you like. And I think a lot of people just think, God, I wish I could make it look that easy. And it doesn't always feel that easy, but there are mm. times when I think, yeah, I'm going to clear up here. You know, like <laughs> even, like, even like when the maximum, when I, on the second red, I said, what's the highest break for 147? I just knew it was going to happen. Yeah. You know, I might have missed, but I just thought, you know what? Yeah, that's, that's well doable. <laughs> and I just think that, you know, there's not really many snooker players that could, uh, could, could have had... No, it's not confidence, but believes that they could do that, you know, because it's not an easy game. But yeah. I just feel it, you know, I just feel that, yeah, it, it's, it's going to happen, you know. So mm. I think that's what people like about the way I play the game, maybe, you know. Yeah. So we've done a lot of research for this interview, but I always like to check research. Okay. Um, so I understand from our research that you have struggled when you were younger with a bit of depression. Mm. So first off, is that true? Mm. And then if it is, how did you beat the demons? I always call it snooker depression. Um, and when I was younger, um, I used to just love the game. And obviously I'd get down on myself if I didn't play well. Um, but then I think when I got to about 18, 17, 18, I kind of started to, to get a lot of doubt and started to compare myself to, say, someone like John Higgins. And I used to look at John Higgins and think, I wish I could play snooker like him. You know, he's just like the perfect player. He had everything, great temperament, great technique, great scoring, great safety. And I thought, how am I going to stay with this guy for the next like 30, 30 years? You know, this geezer's an animal on a snooker table. You know, we all knew how good John Higgins was when he was 14. And, um, you know, and I always had the dream that I wanted to be like Steve Davis, I wanted to be this like serial winner of like multiple world championships. And I thought, this isn't going to happen because I've got John Higgins in my way. <laughs> Can someone just get rid of him, please? Make my life a lot easier. Um, but that wasn't going to happen. So I kind of had to like improve, if you like. You know, the game that I come in as a professional wasn't good enough to, to sustain it over long periods of time. So in a way, although people go, oh, you make the game look easy, it was really hard for me because I was playing like machines. You know, every time I come up to someone, they would just put, it's like playing Chelsea, they, they park the bus, they wouldn't attack, they'd, they'd set traps for me, I would always go for it, leave them in, and they'd go, you know, he's a great player and talented, but you know, he gives you chances. And I was like, and it wasn't until I started working with like Ray Reed and, and, and people like that, that, um, that I started to change my game. And I've had to develop as a snooker player over years. And, and with that development came 
a much stronger belief. So I, I would start to win matches that I would usually usually lose. So like when I said to you, come Thursday, I'm not playing well, I'm out of here. But when I started to work with Ray Reardon and learn the defensive side of the game, I started to win them matches. So now I'm, I'm getting through this game Thursday, I'm still here Friday. And, and then I started to win a lot more tournaments. And um, But it's like I had to learn another side of the game, which I didn't really... I would never have appreciated because I just didn't know how to play that defensive game, you know. Uh, and John Higgins did, so he he was more gifted as a, you know. He was the complete pro even at fourteen. Um, me, I was just a potter. Um, but just being a potter isn't enough to to, to dom dominate your sport, no matter how good a potter you are, because mm. some days they just don't go in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, and then what do you do then? Do you, do you go? Okay, it's not my day, or do you find a, another way of kind of getting the job done? And and that was that's kind of been a hallmark of my career, really, is just trying to become a better match player. Mm. Um, not 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 a better player, just a better match player, and, and learning how to to hustle it out sometimes. You know. Mm. So are you saying, let me see if I can get this right, that your the depression that you experienced was if you didn't play well or comparing yourself to other people, um, it, it, would that be a fair? 100%, yeah. 100% because like all, all I had ever done was snooker, you know, and that's all I ever wanted to be. You know, I looked up at Steve Davis and I analysed how he played, I analysed how he hit the ball, the noise, the sound it made, the angle it come off, why he could soft stun a ball in. And so I was kept very like um, obsessive about, you know, I never, I, I used to watch someone play and I think the only reason why he's getting that ball in there and that white round is because of how he's, he's, his cue action is, you know, and I know I've done interviews talking about cue actions, everyone thought I was taking the mickey, but really, the better the cue action you got, the more options you've got on the table. So, you know, mm. if you're if you're if you're hitting that spot and you're in the zone and you're finding that slot regular, it's it's actually a really easy game. But one day you wake up and you're not in the slot and you just think, you know, you start to panic a bit, you know, because the other guy might be in his zone and you think, Well, hold on, I'm playing like I'm not on it, but he is. I'm gonna lose today. So you kinda start to panic a bit and I think you you kind of um, and that's when the, the the kind of negative depression sort of thoughts come in and you start to, to doubt yourself you start to overanalyze you start to overthink stuff and I think over the years I've had to learn to not overanalyze to not overthink to just trust myself to kind of just forget that I've just played a bad shot or had a bad game and just kind of just get get back on the bike and just accept that you know, snooker, I'm never going to be able to be perfect to snooker. But what I can do is, is I can kind of forget what's gone on in the past and, and just kind of just get, get back on the bike and start, you know, one shot at a time sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Did, did you at one point get quite into, was it Buddhism? Yeah. Because that sounded a little bit Buddhist, what you said there, okay. in a way. Um, what got you into that and how did that help you? I think uh, the, 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 what kind of got me into that was I went into a rehab, I think it was in 2000. Um, yeah, I was having some problems with drinking and smoking a bit of dope at the time and stuff like that. And uh, I kind of got to a point where it wasn't fun. It wasn't really giving me the release that it did when I first started. And I kind of thought, I need to really knock this on the head because obviously, you know, I was getting drug tested quite a lot as a player. And I thought, you know, this this dope stays in the system for like 30 days. You know, so like I was starting to have to miss tournaments, miss events, just because I thought I might get tested. And I'd rather not play than get tested again <laughs> for cannabis because I got done once. For yeah. it. 
And uh, so I was kind of like, I, was, I thought, I'm screwed here. <laughs> Unless I find a way to get off this weed and this beer, I'm like, you know, maybe it's time to retire. And I was like, I was only like 24. And I thought, what else am I going to do with my time? I, I only know how to play snooker. It's not like I could um, go and do anything else. So uh, I, I stuck myself in, well, I didn't stick myself in, into a rehab. Somebody else did. I thought, that's a bit harsh, though, you know? Like, I thought that was for hardcore addicts, you know? And um, But for me, it was probably the best thing I've ever done, you know? So I got a month off of everything, came out, and um, and I've never looked back, really. And, I, and, I, and part of the process of kind of getting well, if you like, um, was to, to try and find a higher power. Um, a lot of people went to religion. Um, I thought, I'm not really down with rules, you know, I'm not good with rules. <laughs> so I thought, anyone telling me that I've got to do this and do that and do this and do that, I was like, you know, but I tried it and it's, and it, and, it, and I can see why people like it and it can work, it can work for some people. <laughs> <laughs> it can work for some people, um, but it just wasn't going to work for me. So Buddhism was kind of like a, I don't know, it just, it was something that I thought maybe, kind of could give me some structure, give me some peace, because I, I needed a bit of peace of mind, you know, within this snooker depression, within this sport that I really think is a tough sport, what well, is for me, some people it might not be, I need to find that little bit of inner peace, you know, that place where I can take myself to and just kind of like feel all right about myself, you know, whether I play well or not, if I can take myself to that place where I think, you know, life's okay, then I'm able to probably cope with the demands of snooker. So Buddhism was, was a good one for me because I kind of, it allowed me to just kind of just, yeah, just to just try and just find that contentment without handing my life over to this higher power that already had the plan made. You know, so for mm. me, if, when I looked at like a, a God in a way, I kind of thought, if he's already made the decisions, what's the point of me putting the, in the, the effort? And I mean, I could try really hard all day, and yet he's, he's already made the decision. <laughs> yeah. And that really bothered me. <laughs> but with Buddhism, there was none of that. It was just like, you just find your own peace, your own rhythm, and kind of like, you still have an element of control of what the outcome can be. You know, mm. I, I never like to feel like I'm, that I have no control out of the outcome of any situation. So Buddhism worked really well for me. And I still kind of, hold on to some of them teachings, you know, because sometimes... What was the main thing, main teachings you got from it? I think what it was was just about, you know, just, you know, like you'd have, let's say you have three people, one person you didn't really like, one that was neutral and one that you really liked, and you kind of wish them all the same sort of happiness, the same sort of good luck, and, this, you know, so you kind of like, to say there'd be people on a snooker tour that I'd think, oh, I really can't stand him. <laughs> But I have to start wishing him really happiness for him and his family. And, and actually, it made me feel a lot more mm. okay with him, you know. And in the end, I, I had a better relationship with this guy. So I totally bought into it in a way, you know, yeah. because why wouldn't you want to wish someone well, you know, because I didn't get on well with him, you know, that, you know, he's still a father, he's still a husband, he's yeah. still got his own life going on. So, and, 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 it, and, it, and when I was holding maybe a grudge against that person, it was only damaging me. He probably didn't really care, you know. He might not have so, even known. Really, well, I think he did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of let him, you know, I, I kind of have a good way of letting people know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to suffer their bullshit, really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm a lot better at suffering people's bullshit now, but I just, I just pacify them now. I just kind of go, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Whereas before I'd be like, oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. you know, I want them to know that I think they're not that, uh, that I'm not really down with them. So, um, but no, I'm a lot, a lot more gentler than that. And I, and I, and also I think as well with faults, like I was talking about faults in snooker. You know, you can kind of grab onto them, but with Buddhism, it's kind of like you, you don't try and get rid of them, but you just it's like a conveyor belt. Imagine like an Amazon of parcels going by. Every one of them parcels is is a different fault, yeah. but you just let them go, and you look at them, and they go, and they go, and it's like you're training your mind to just kind of not deny them, but I'm not grabbing at them, you know, I'm not going to let them take hold of me. So you know, it's a little bit like a like a like a, a, a Navy SEAL. You're training yourself to be able to perform under the most extreme pressures. Mm. A lot of the stuff you do off the table benefits you on the table so yeah. you kind of as a sportsman you're always looking you always perform your best when you're content you're relaxed but you're ready to fight yeah. <laughs> you know you have to be ready to fight because if you haven't got that fighting spirit in you then you can never really dominate your opponent you know because it's a tough world you know it's a tough sport any sport and only the fittest survive so you know mm. I, I never try to deny that fight in me because that fight has got me through my career and has made me a tenacious, competitive opponent. Uh, and, 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 and that's what's, you know, that's the most important thing. But within that, I think you can kind of do it and have, have peace as well, you know. Mm. So we found you saying that, and again, correct me if these are right or wrong. Yeah. Um, I was the king of self-sabotage. Yeah. Is that something you said, and what did you mean by that? I didn't know. I didn't know it. I just, I really didn't know it until I started working with Steve Peters. Um, and then he went to uh, one of the first times he met. He said, "You know, you just you go into sabotage mode." And I was like, "Wow, I do." And it's like I said to you, like I get to Thursday and I'm like, I'm out of here. But that's sabotage. That wasn't. I mean, we, Steve calls it the chimp. So you got the, the human and the chimp. And my chimp would be like, you know what? I can't stand the pressure. I'm not going to beat this guy. Even if I get through this match, I'm going to lose on Friday. I might as well lose today. I might as well, you know, go home, have a few drinks, you know, have a barbecue. <laughs> you know, so that's that's a form of sabotage because I was allowing, I was grabbing on to them thoughts. Yeah. And, and I believe they were really real. And, and it wasn't until... After the game, so just say I've sabotaged the game, I'd get back to my room, I'd feel really, you know, all right about it. But then an hour later, I'm thinking, what an idiot, you know, I wish I'd have, I could have, I could have tried a bit harder, I could have stuck in that match, and I quite gutted that I'm not going to be playing tomorrow. Yeah. And it was kind of, I was allowing that sabotage faults to take over. And since working with Steve Peters, he, he's made me realize that. That's all bollocks, you know. Them sabotage thoughts are not me. That's just the pressure, the situation, and that's me just going. I'm running for the exit door. <laughs> now I don't run for the exit door. I go, yeah, things might not be going for me, but I'm here to fight, yeah. <laughs> and I'm here to fight to the last ball. And if I lose, I shake my opponent's hand. And I go, you know what? Well done. You done well. So I've got no regrets. And I think since working, I think pre-working with Steve Peters, I was sabotaged 13 times a year. And then the other, you've got like a system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 30 <laughs> times I would bail out. I'd go, right, I'm going for the exit door. I wouldn't say I'm going for the exit door, but that was what it is, fight, flight, or freeze. And I would, I would, I would freeze or I would flight. I'd be like, I'm out of here. Um, and since working with Steve Peters, which has been 10 years now, it's wow. a decade, which yeah. is a long time. And he's, a, he's, the, he's one of my favourite humans. I love him. Yeah. I really, really do. And he's helped me so much. I reckon I've sabotaged maybe four or five times in them 10 years. So that's a lot. So so if you say like, t 
13 times a year times 10, that's 130 sabotages. I've, I've cut 130 down to five sabotages. That's good skills. So, and, and, it, and it just shows in, in the amount of taunts that I've won since working with Steve Peters because I've just learned to just fight, mm. you know, and, and, and stay calm. Fight and stay calm, you know, and, 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 and that's really um, what sabotage is all about, you know, and, and I just apply it into a lot of other things that I do in life because, you know, I, I, I like... I don't like too much hard work. I sometimes want to run away from it, but now I just face it and realize that if I do my best, that's enough, you mm. know? And if my best is not good enough today, my best might be good enough the next day. So you just kind of have to just keep just showing up really, you know? Mm. Yeah, great. Steve Peters' book was, for years, kept me off number one. <laughs> bastard, Steve Bastard Peters. I used it's to look at that all the time. I'd love to come second to Steve Peters. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. I, I, seriously, that guy is unbelievable. Yeah, and, I mean, that was a great book. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I know you've kind of like got your own sort of thing <laughs> That's going all good. on. But it's, it's, Maybe I need to you're in great hire company. him you're in great to get company. into my head. Well, no, <laughs> listen, I think you and Steve are very similar. you kind of got this good aura, this sort of, you know, you, you just... You're very positive without being positive, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, Steve, Steve Peter said to me within the first 10 minutes, I'm not going to tell you to think positive because that's, that don't work. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> All the people I've been saying is like, be positive, be positive. And I thought, oh God, I, I couldn't stand that because it was just too fake, yeah. too Americanized. I'm an Englishman. I'm, you know, I love to be a little bit negative. I love to sort of <laughs> dwell in my own pity sometimes, you know what I mean? But now I'm aware of it. And I don't have to dwell in it so much, you know. And um, so I think, yeah, like Steve, Steve's been great. And yeah, like, like I say, you're in, you're in good company, yeah. There, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm only playing a great book. <laughs> great book. <laughs> um, right. So we've got another one here. Another Ronnie quote. So I understand you said to the Victoria Derbyshire, I love a breakdown as it spurs me to fight mm. back. Mm. So what do you mean by that? Well, like I said, I had so many... What I do, because I always like to say pre-Steve Peters and post-Steve Peters, because there, there's two different models there. The one pre-Steve Peters was breakdown, spiral. So I'd spiral so much, so low. Um, but my low was still quarterfinals, last 16, still a top four player, you know, out drinking, partying. I always knew when to rein it in. And, uh, you know, I'd go run and keep fit. I, I, I kind of managed, managed it. Um, but I would kind of like know that once I was on a down, I'd go, right, well, I can't stop this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to last about three weeks, this spiral. <laughs> so I just used to go with it. But I knew <laughs> at the end of the three weeks, I'd go so low that the only way out was to go up. <laughs> and it was like, how do I time the low to then go, right, I want to be up for this tournament. So in a way, I'd, I'd kind of like, I wouldn't win so much because I thought I haven't got the ability or the strength to, to continuously win. So I'd pick certain tournaments that I'd want to do well in, like the World Championships, the UKs, the Masters. And I'd always say in the tournaments before, don't win them. Even if I thought I could, don't win them because you don't want to waste your wins. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't want to win the British Open. I don't want to win this, this whatever the tournament is. I want to win the UK. I want to win the world. I want to win that, win, win that one. Um, so I would kind of not bail out of the cause, but go, you know what? My game's okay. I'm in good shape, you know? Um, and, I, and I would kind of approach my tournaments like that. So so would you, you ever, like, try less hard in a match to help you go out? Well, I would kind of say, it was more of like a subconscious thing, yeah. So, like, I kind of think, well, like, quarters is enough. 
semis is don't get to the final. <laughs> don't get to the final because you don't want to lose finals. Semis, you don't really, that's not a nice match to lose because you're one away from the final. Quarters is not a bad place to lose <laughs> because you're kind of you're kind of under the radar. No one really talks about it. The tournament kind of gets going at the quarters. So you kind of feel like I've invested enough, but I haven't wasted it either. You know, I'll get two or three days at home ready for the tournament the next week. So it was kind of like that was my like way of thinking in a way. And uh, and it kind of worked for me in a way. Um, but I probably wasn't getting as many wins consecutively so I never believed I could go back to back win one tournament one week win a tournament the next week and win a tournament next week I'd never done it so I thought well if I've never done it that's just my style you know mm. so I had to kind of like pace myself and and try and sort of peak at the right times and and yeah when the when the spiral came and the breakdown came it was like okay suffer it for three weeks but once you come out of it you've got three weeks of flying back up to the top you know yeah. Um, so that was my kind of way of kind of dealing, um, of just knowing your knowing your own behaviours and knowing your own patterns, really. But obviously, since working with Steve Peters, I've turned that around, and now I believe I can win week after week. There is a limit on it, um, and if I've won three or four tournaments on the bounce, I'm gone. You know, I don't, I don't even want to look at snooker table. Let them yeah. play and get competitive and get juiced up. So. You know, I always think, you know, I can win two, tw- you know, one tournament one week, another the next week, maybe the third week. Come the fourth, I might win it. But there's no fun in it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of done, you know, because probably could do with a holiday, sitting on the beach for three or four weeks before I actually want to look at another snooker table. But, yeah, I don't, I don't have the breakdowns as much now. And I think I have a much better balance. So, like, when we spoke before, I have lots of other different interests. So there's a lot of um, distractions but good distractions going on, which kind of like allow me to uh, relax a bit more and not just think snooker to be an end all because, mm. you know, it, it can be tough when something just becomes all consuming, really, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm loving this. Yeah. I'm loving this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, we've got some snooker. I mean, I know we've, of course, snooker is a big part of your life, but we'll move now into the more specific snooker round. Um, your interview, so as deep or as quick as you want to go on this. Mm. Um, how do you want your snooker career to be remembered? Uh, like I said, you know, at the beginning, I think you look at certain sports people and um, you kind of just think, right, well, if I start, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die next week, I've got to have a tombstone, I've got to have, you know, say a few words. I'd probably say, like, you know, I'd, I'd like to be remembered as someone that played the game in a, in a swashbuckling style, um, with finesse. Um, For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector, I'm a watch investor, and those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United, and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk, and he sources the higher-end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him, I've used him for many years, and recently we've done a partnership. Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496 878153. 
Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. No, but no other player has probably played with the same sort of style or panache, if you like, or or whatever it is. You know, it's you know, I'm just making words up here that other people use. It's not me that's that's saying that. And I just kind of sometimes I look back on some of my YouTube stuff and and watch myself play, and I and the person that I'm watching, I just think, is that really me? Because I don't feel that person when I'm out there I just feel like I'm just doing it and it's coming and you're just kind of battling and you know even when you're playing well and you're flying you think I'm still really having to hold it together you know it's not something that just it's not like you like we're down a club and you're hitting balls and you don't care if you miss every time you're on that match table it's like even when you're playing your best you sort of like got to still hold it together because any lapse of concentration the game never forgives you and then you kind of like hand that to your opponent so I think just sort of like being able to be as successful as I was, which was unbelievable. And that's all I ever wanted to do as a, as, as a youngster was to is, to is to have the titles. I've managed to do that. But then I think what separates me from Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis is the style of play I've done it in. No snooker player, well, there isn't. No snooker player has played the way I've played, which is very attacking, you could say, um, and had the victories that I've had. So I think... For that reason, I kind of stand out from every other snooker player that's ever played the game. They had Jimmy White, made six finals. Alex Higgins won two world titles. But neither of them really dominated the sport like I did. And I kind of think, like I said a bit earlier, the more talented you are, the harder it is to dominate any sport. I think sometimes the talent can, can, can make you a bit lazy. And sometimes it's, it's nice to have talent, but you sometimes really have to work at it and develop as a player. And if you're that talented... You, you kind of think, well, I don't need to develop because, you know, I can pot everything. Really, there's there's many facets to snooker. So um, I think that's how I'd like to be remembered as probably someone like Muhammad Ali was in boxing, Lionel Messi, Maradona was in football, Roger Federer was to tennis, Phil Taylor maybe to darts, you know, Usain Bolt was to, 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 to athletics. I think I would love to think that I could kind of fit in if, if there was an invite to a room upstairs when God says, right, we're all up here and there was a little room, I could maybe knock on the door and go, do you mind if I come and have supper with you guys? And they'd go, oh yeah, you're welcome. You're one of us. You know, I'd like to think yeah. that, you know, that um, I'd have that that in- invite, if you like, to that table and, and not feel out of place. So mm. for me, that's a, that's, a, that's, that's brilliant. I never thought yeah. as a kid that I would ever feel like I could fit into them, that little bracket, you know? Yeah, love it. Mm. Career high, career low. Mm. Career high. I think I started with career. I think the career high for me was 2012 when I managed to win the World Championships. And that was, I'd been working with Steve Peters for a year. And I'd got, I'd kind of like, before that in 2011, I was ready to retire. Um, I'd had a lot going on off the table. And I just kind of just thought, I've had enough, you know. Like, like I say, I was, I was ready for the exit door. Um, ready to just give it all up really um, I was 35 most snooker players beyond 35 never really done much so I thought well, if I'm not going to do much and I'm feeling like this I might as well try my hand at something else you know and then obviously met Steve Peters and then I kind of started playing well and enjoying it and competing and thinking wow this is this is I'm, I'm really getting any, a buzz out of this but I wasn't getting the results and come you know Come like leading up to the world championships, I was thinking like if, if I'm playing well, I'm feeling good, and not getting the results. Maybe 
I've tipped over the edge of where I'm kind of done, really. You know, even my good my good game is probably not good enough to win. So, is there any point in playing? Um, and then come the World Championships, I just remember I got on a practice table. And the week before the World Championships, I couldn't put a ball. I was getting whooped in practice. Couldn't, you know, and, and, and I left my cue under the table. I went, stay in there. And I didn't pick my cue up for a week. And then before I went to Sheffield, I went up there, got my cue, put it in the car. I thought, okay, see what happens. I had no expectations. I get to the Crucible. I felt good because I hadn't played for weeks. So I was like, you know, quite excited to play. Um, didn't want to burn myself out too much playing crap the week before, basically. So I allowed myself that time off, get to Sheffield, started hitting the ball, the table was nice, boom, and then one day I come in and everything was going in the middle of the hole. I was like, what? what's going on there? What's going on? I was like, I've never felt this good on a table. And I said to Les Dodd, I said, I need a new tip, mate. And he put a tip on for me. And, I went, and he went, as a tip, I went, fantastic, mate. Tip might not be, it was just the way I was hitting the ball, it was ripping, it was making such a good, and I thought, what is going on here? I was on the practice table three hours a day because I was just enjoying playing so much. I thought, oh. and every time I got on the table, so like the World Championships is used like two sessions, three sessions, four session matches. So they're long games. So you, you can kind of lose it in one session, um, but you can't win it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's kind of like managing your bad sessions. And every match I had, what I thought was a bad session, but they were four all. But when I when I hit the money, it was seven one eight nil. So we'd we'd be like four after the first session, and the guys thinking, you know, we've jockeyed. You know, yeah. he's played well. I've played played all right. Four all, and I'm thinking, God, oh, this could be a thirteen ten or a thirteen. This could go the distance. Next session, I went hundred ninety, hundred eighty, and the guys sit, and I thought, <laughs> and it was just, it, it was so quick. And I come off, and I think, wow, that was unbelievable. It was like I've been fired up with some sort of vaccine or something I don't know what the, it's a good word to use there these days vaccine but I'd say it was like something had just been triggered in me and I just every match I basically just played two or three brilliant sessions and, and basically no one got near me and I was like how did that happen and then my little boy was up there and he was only like four or five at the time and it was always one of my ambitions was to win a tournament didn't have to be the world but a tournament and he came down and kind of shared the moment with me um, because obviously I wasn't, I wasn't with them. You know, I, I had to leave that family when I was two, so I kind of never really had that bond or that everyday bond where you wake up with your kids. So I kind of like, I missed out on that really. And, and and all I had was that if I do get to a final at all, maybe he could come and then share in that moment where it was me and him. And then when I won it in 2012 and I knew I was over the line, I got really emotional. But I thought, I can't show any emotion in here. You know what I mean? This is, my dad always said to me, if ever you win a tournament, you mustn't cry. And I had that in my head and I could feel myself welling up, but I didn't cry. And uh, and, then that, and as I, oh, no, it's just, a, just the most un unbelievable feeling. And then little Ronnie come down there. I just, I was in that crucible, there was 980 people there. And I was felt like I felt like king. I felt like there's no feeling. I've never had a feeling like it in my life. Because I just thought I've played the best snooker I could ever play. I've dominated this tournament. I've come from nowhere. I didn't put a ball for two years the previous. They was writing me off. And all of a sudden I've gone, have some of that. <laughs> have some of that. Put that in your archive. That's on YouTube for the rest of You tell me if there's any other snooker player that's won the world championship like that. No chance. You know, I, the nearest anyone got to me was six, seven frames. You know, it was just like, mm. it was just, it just, and that's not, that's not taking anything away from my opponents. Mm. I just was, I was just too good. Yeah. Too good for too long. 
And uh, and it never felt easy. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't sit, sitting there thinking I'm six up, five up. This is easy. I was on it. You know, I had to be on it all the time. And uh, and that was that was thanks to Steve Peters. You know, I never would have played that well for that long in that tournament and done it in that style without the help of him. So that for me was the most complete performance that any snooker player. You know, 17 days mm. in the World Championships. I, you know, maybe Hendry. But I don't even think Hendry would have, in his prime, been able to stay with me the way I was playing. And that's me being being honest. That's, yeah. that's me, you know, fancying my chances against anybody that's ever, ever played this game. You know, on that form, I would have fancied I'd have come out on top. Mm. <laughs> Just a quick question. That's brilliant, by the way. Yeah. Getting goosebumps there. Yeah. Quick question before we move on to the career low. Why do you think your dad said to you, never cry if you win a tournament? He's a bit of a hard man. He's a bit of a hard man, you know. I think his, his upbringing, um, you know, he was a, you know, he had, he had a tough life, you know, he had a tough life. And I just think it's like, don't show no weakness. Never show any weakness. And that was what was drilled into me when I was younger. Don't show any weakness. You, you know, I don't want to see any emotion on you. If I come in the club, don't get the ump, don't get too excited. If you've won a tournament, it's history. It doesn't matter. It's about the next one. And I was like, I was only like nine or ten. <laughs> it's a pretty like intense conversation. But it was all coming from from the right place. No one wanted me to be successful more than my dad. No one was more proud of me than my dad. Um, a lot of people would look at it and go, you know, don't you think that's a bit harsh for a nine, ten-year-old dad? Probably. But if I was to become the champion that I wanted to become, I've got to learn to be able to take that on board, deal with it, and at some point, me and my dad kind of went, like, I'm better off without you now. And that, that happened at about 12. And when I say better off without you, like, don't come and watch me play. Stay at home. I'll ring you. Yeah, dad, I won 3-0, played good. That's it. I don't need... It wasn't beneficial for me having him in the room because I felt too much pressure to play the, the, the shots that I thought he wanted me to play. And um, he'd go, why'd you pop that? Why'd you do that? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do this? And in the end, I'm like, oh, dear, I don't know. <laughs> Let me just play. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? So it kind of like, but he instilled this ability to perform under the most extreme pressure. And there was no pressure worse than having my dad watching me, criticising me, telling me I was no good, I was shit, everyone else is better than me, I needed to do this, I needed to do that, why did you play that shot? And in the end, I was like, I could play under that, but I didn't play to my true potential. And then one day, he stopped coming. He went, I've had enough, I'm not coming to watch you play. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll get a lift with one of the other parents. <laughs> I said, great, there's your 50 quid. <laughs> Have a good day. Have a good weekend. So I get me 50 quid. Someone will knock at the door. I got me, I thought, oh, this is great. I've got no pressure on me. No one's, no one's going to be telling me how, why have I gone for this shot and that shot. And I started getting to the last 16. And I got to the, and then I won a tournament. And he come down about the quarterfinals. And he went, you're all right? And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. He went, all right. And he just stood there. He didn't watch me play. He went, right, I'm going now. Me and your mum are going out. So I was like, lovely. Anyway, I won my first Pro-Am. I was only 12. And the Pro-Am is where pros and amateurs can play mm. in the same competition. But I was only 12. I wasn't even, you know, I was a junior. But not even, I was, it's like you had under 60. To, to be a junior, it was like an under 16 tournament. So I was, I was junior, junior. <laughs> and I ended up winning this Pro-Am. And I was like, how the hell have I done that? It's like I was beat the likes of Pete Rebden, Ken Dockett. You were pros by now. So you've got this little 12-year-old like slapping their bums, you know what I mean? 
<laughs> and I was thinking, this, this shouldn't be happening, right? <laughs> and I got a cheque for £600, I got a trophy, and I thought, oh, that's it. If I'd if I never done anything after that, I'd have been so happy with just that moment. But looking back, that was like a bit of a freak, really, a freak thing to, to be able to do. So I think, yeah, you know, like learning to play under the extreme pressure that my dad kind of put me under, but it was all meant coming from the right place. And I just think the reason why not to show an emotion was his upbringing, his toughness and his way of dealing with things. And I love the way he deals with things. I, I, I wish I had more of that in me naturally, but like I said, I've had to work on that. And I am a bit softer, I'm a bit more sensitive. And my dad is quite sensitive, it's just that he's a bit more able to just hold it down. Whereas me, I just pour it all out. So I'll do an interview and I'll just say, I'm in bits, I can't handle this, oh, we're going. Everyone's like, he's mad, he's gone. <laughs> But I'm right, like an hour afterwards, but I just, I'm not very good at hiding my emotions, you know what I mean? So mm. I've kind of had to learn that it's okay to let my emotions out, but then I also know that I'm a quick, I recover quite quick. So yeah. someone can think I'm down, but give me an hour, I'm a different person, I'm, like, I'm ready to go again. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's, um, that was, that was, yeah, probably the reason why it, that kind of come from my dad. Um, but like I say, it was all meant. In, 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 in a good way, if that mm. makes sense, you know. Who wants to see a geezer win and just keep crying anyway? Uh, listen, when Federer does it, it's cute because uh, he's, he's, <laughs> he's super cool. But um, if I was Swiss, maybe I could make that look good, but I'm not. I'd probably look like a sad, sad human being. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and are you all right talking about your career low? Yeah, my career low. Because um, I've had so many. I've probably had m much more lows than I've had um highs it's only because because i think with the highs you kind of you kind of get into a rhythm of it and you kind of take it for granted you know that you're in a good place and it's like you know yeah you kind of like like i say you, you trained in a way whereas it just sort of becomes like getting out of bed brushing your teeth duh, 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 and you kind of like it all falls into place whereas my lows were just <laughs> they were like really dark sort of places and i and i just remember having like a continuous six years of a dark place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a continuous five, say five years from the age of 20, 19 to 24. It was pretty dark. Um, and then I had a little spell from 2008, 2009 to 2011 where they were pretty bad moments. Um, and I just think probably the lowest I felt the lowest I felt was, I think, I think what, uh, probably around just before, yeah, about 1996, I put on a lot of weight um, and, and I, I just heard someone say, is that the fat one or the slim one? And I knew it was me, I was the fat one. And I just kind of, I've, I've always wanted, you know, I've always prided myself on a bit of self-respect and then I kind of like, when you hear someone say that about you, you kind of think, really, is that they're talking about me there? And I kind of like, again, it kind of fueled me to kind of get myself fit. So within five months, I'd gone from 16 stone to 12 stone. I was training three times a day. But that was probably the lowest period of my life. Um, the lowest period on the table was probably in 2000, 2006, I think, when I walked out against Stephen Hendry. I wasn't enjoying my snooker then. I had a lot of off the table personal things going on and I, and I never really enjoyed playing. Um, 
And that moment when I walked out of him, I just couldn't take being out there. I didn't like my life. I was very unhappy. Um, yeah, and being under that sort of scrutiny, if you like, um, I just couldn't handle it. And then and I walked out against Stephen Hendry. And, uh, but then again, you know, that was, that was a lesson. I got punished for that. And I just thought, well, don't do that again. And I kind of had to deal with my personal life in a way. So it forced me to kind of, a little bit like, with the drinking drugs, I had to go to the Priory. I had to deal with it. I couldn't continue playing snooker like that. And the personal issues that I'd gone on in my life in 2006, I couldn't carry on playing snooker and have them issues going on off the table. So it forced me to deal with that because I wanted to play snooker. That was my job. That's what I do. That's, 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 that's something I never wanted taken away from me. So, yeah, that was probably my lowest sort of time in my, my life on the table. Mm. Um, yeah. What makes me sad hearing that is that's like your prime, 19 yeah. to 25. Yeah. Is there anything you could say to anyone so that they don't spend their prime years on the floor? Yeah, I just think, um, oh, I said, you know, I had five years there where I just went missing and, and I had another two years where I went missing. So in a way, I've like, although I've been a pro 30 years, I'd probably only say I've been present in about 20 20, 20 of them. I've had seven, eight, nine, ten years where I've kind of just, just not been on, been on the, just been there really. Just I've been there, but I haven't been there. And I just think for any young person coming through, you know, I that when people go, oh, if I had my time over again, I'd, 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 I wouldn't change anything. I'm like, really? I've changed so many things, so many things. And uh, I just think I would just, I would just, I think my dad going away fucked me up really. Um, and and it's a shame, really, because I think he he was my anchor, and if I was being naughty, he would quickly put me in line. When he went away, I just thought, fuck, I got no one to put me in line. You know, I can just do what I like when I like. I had a bit of money. No one no one could tell me what to do, and uh, and I just quickly got involved with the wrong people. So I think for anyone younger. And I, and I likened it a bit like Mike Tyson when he first came on the scene. He had the two managers, you know, two Jewish guys, and they were good for him. He had customer, he had a good team. And then Don King slipped in, and all of a sudden he's hanging around with the wrong people. And you know, he, he attracted you know people in his life that didn't really have his best interests at heart. And I just think it's about having the best support network you can, especially as a sports people. It's also, that's all we do is do sport. You know, and, and then there's people that either want to support that or take advantage of it. And I think as a sportsman, you need to surround yourself with people that are just there to put you first and your interests first. And I see it on the snooker circuit. I'd like someone like Stuart Bingham has become a very good friend of me. He's got an amazing support network, which allows him to go and play snooker and do as well as he does. He's got a great manager. He's got a great family. He's got a great setup. And you just see that that, that enables him to to be the best snooker player he can be. I didn't do that. I chose lots of wrong people. Um, I managed to eventually get to the good people. Um, but if I'd known then what I know now, and I always said to Steve Peters, I wish I'd have met you when I was 19. I wonder what I could have achieved in this game. He went, don't start something like that. Better late than never. Because you know? <laughs> I'm always one of them. I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done, wish I could have done this. Steve's like, accept, move on. Accept and move on. So um, I just think having a support network, um, having a good partner, having a good manager, having good role models is so, so important. And yeah, it's, um, 
yeah, I think just having all that because I because I didn't have that, and I'd be I'd feel so. I think what really killed me was I would be I would have everything. I've got two kids, girlfriend, whatever, but I'd be in certain environments and I'd feel so lonely. I'd see other people that had the the wife, the husband, the kids living together, and I think oh, I'd, 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 I'd that's all I ever wanted. I never wanted because whenever my mum and dad had an argument, my dad used to disappear for two or three days. I used to be waiting for him at the window <laughs> and I'm thinking I never want my kids to go through that but they did and I didn't want them to do that I didn't want to put them through that so I felt a lot a lot of guilt and I've had therapy for certain things that I thought I needed therapy for but I never really needed therapy for that what it was was the guilt that I'd left my kids and not been able to be there for them and I've had to overcome that sort of thing in a way and now I don't feel guilty um, because I've let it all out, really. Uh, and that, that was tough. And I look at people like Stuart and other players on the tour, and they've got that great support network. And I, and I used to really envy it in a way, not in a horrible way, but just think, I wish I, I'd give up two or three world titles or whatever, just so as I had that, because that would really, you know, that's, that's nice to come home to. But now I don't. I'm 45. My kids are 14, 15. They're enjoying themselves. They're, you know, they've had a great start in life. And now I see this as my chance to now kind of look at the next 15, 20 years of what do I want to do, really. Yeah. So I've kind of, I probably wouldn't have spoke about it five, ten years ago because it's like, like, like my dad said, don't show no weakness. So you kind of don't really want to show all your cards. But at some point, I think it's nice to kind of just let it out at the right time and go, you know what, I've dealt with it, it's there. If someone can get something out of it, if someone's going through that symptom. So it's a little bit like my book, Running, and my first book. A lot of people from my first book have, have got, got into to, to, to the 12 steps and, and overcome their addictions. And, and I get so much pleasure from people that come up to me and go, since reading your book, I'm eight years clean, I'm sober. And I go, wow. And he said, I got that from reading your book. Because he said, I never thought anyone felt like I did. He said, when I read your book and you told, you said how you felt, I was like, yes, <laughs> I'm not the only person. And I'm like, you know what? So in a roundabout way, by opening yourself up and, and, your, and what you've done and how your past has been, is not allowing somebody else to get strength from that. And I think with my running book as well, you know, I get a lot of people go, I'm into running, I'm into this, and it's been a life change. And I just think, wow. You know what I mean? It's like, I get a great joy out of that. Do you know what I mean? You know, mm. because I, I, it's very hard for me to get a one-on-one -on -one with people. But if I do a book or I do like a chat like this, that can get to so many people. And hopefully, yeah. you know, that's your way of giving back in a way. Do you know what I mean? And it, yeah. it's, it's choosing that right moment to talk about certain things. Because if it's too raw and you talk about it, then you think, well, really, should, you know, I should, maybe that wasn't the right time. But yeah, it's just about kind of... Yeah, when he's right to, to talk about certain things, I suppose. A mm. couple of things that fascinate me out of that. A lot of people talk about not getting around the wrong people. So let's help people define the wrong kind of people. What are their traits and habits? Yeah, don't to, no, don't have to mention names, but, you know, how, yeah. how do we avoid these people? I think, I think in a way it's sort of like you want, I mean, you want someone that's going to support you no matter what you know, um, through the, the, the tough times, the high times. And yeah, listen, if you're being a bit of a dick and you get home, you know, you're gonna get like, you're gonna get like told and you're gonna go, oh, well, I've, I've overstepped the mark. But when you're out there doing battle, you're doing something, it's like, you know, support that person, do what he's gotta do. And, um, and like I said, it's like choosing, choosing your moments and your time. So, you know, nobody's perfect, but I just think having that person that's, that's, that's behind you, 
and you know they're behind you. And I see it with certain snooker players. They've got that person that's behind them and, and you just think, wow, that, that's, 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 that's a great asset for him, that he's got a team of people around him that are just there for him. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's all about him and it's all about, you know, having that support network and, and, um, and a lot of, you know, some, some, some people that I've had, they, they come to talk to me and all they want to do is take, 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 you know, can I have your waistcoat? Can I have this? Can I have that? Can I have this? Can I have that? And you're like, I'm just here, you know, I'm just here to play snooker and all they're interested in is sort of like, you know, can you sign this? Can you sign that? Can you sign this for my mm. friend? Can you say hello to my uncle Terry? And, you know, can you come, come around and give, you know, and you're like, wow, you know what I mean? Can't we just, just chill out here? You know? <laughs> just have a nice bit of dinner and tea and put the TV on and just have a bit of a laugh. So I think sometimes you just, you just got to like, and it took me a while because I'm a bit of a people pleaser. So I just kind of, I never want to disappoint anyone. And, um, but I've just learned over the last, I've probably learned more in the last five years than I did in the previous 40. I'm a little bit more, you know, brutal with my, who I have around me, you know, and, 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 and are they actually, good to have around me you know mm. and, and it's kind of like so like in, in a way I'll, I'll invite one, one you know I've got three or four really really good friends and I think if I invite him but then I invite two people that you know not not not, not bad people but they're just liberty takers really they're going to affect mm. my good friend so it's about you know I have to be careful who I invite and, and where that you know so sometimes I'll have my good friend with me but I said to the other guy look I can get you tickets but you know there's no backstage stuff going on because you know it's just not going to happen so you just kind of have to put people in certain places in a way yeah. and um, listen I, I mean Steve Peters when he first started working with me he went oh, he'd come in my dressing room there'd be like eight nine people in there and he, he went to me he said who are all these people <laughs> I went, well, that's him, that's him, that's him. It was like, it was like, having, a, like having a rave in my dressing room, right? And he says, he says you're, you're supposed to be playing a snooker match, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're supposed to be getting ready for this. I'm like, yeah, I know, Steve, but I can't say no to him. I can't say no to him. And, and in the end, he was like, Ronnie, you know? And it was just like, and it was so hard. So I'd kind of go to a different room to talk to Steve. And then once I finished with Steve, I'd go back to my room and there was like 10, 15 people in there. <laughs> And in the end, I thought, this ain't no good either, do you know what I mean? So I kind of just, when I'm at tournaments now, I just have me and Steve, and I really get the best out of Steve, and we have a fantastic relationship. Or then another tournament, it'd be me and Damien, and that's great, and we have a fantastic relationship. And, you know, they're my two most important people, if you like, when I'm at snooker. You know, Damien is unbelievable, and Steve is unbelievable. Damien, Damien um painting. Oh, yeah, Damien, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, he loves snooker, and he's a been a fantastic friend to me and um and, and, and it's so different with Steve it's very <laughs> Damien Damien, <laughs> yeah. Damien Hurst yeah. yeah with Steve it's very like you know machine like but with Damien it's like uh, you're a king who cares you know what I mean like it'll come when it comes and that's just because he's creative you know yeah. he'll go and paint when he's feeling creative <laughs> if he's not feeling creative it's like it's not happening today and he always says I don't know how you do it at 2 o'clock you've got to play he said but you might not feel like, feel like playing at 2 o'clock I'm like, I know he says I just couldn't do that he said and all these people watching you as well so he totally gets it yeah. um, because you know I, I play snooker in a creative way and, and some days I don't feel like being creative and I'm not a machine mm. so it's very hard for me to go out there and go from creative person to machine like but yeah. I've had to learn that because it's the nature of the sport 
you know, a, a sport demands discipline from you, you know, like to, to do things when you don't actually want to do it, you know. People paid their money, you know, you, what, oh, I don't feel like it today, I can't do it. Mm. It's different for Damien, he can pick and choose when he does, but, um, and I'd love to have that option, and that's what practice is like. Some days I go in, I have a 20 minute rule. If after 20 minutes I'm not enjoying it, Q goes away in the case, and I go down to the restaurant, and I eat lovely food, and I read a book, and I have a laugh, and I have a wonderful day. Because if it ain't good after 20 minutes, it certainly ain't going to be good <laughs> after two and a half, three hours. So I kind of learn to sort of like minimize the, the shit, if you like, you know, yeah. and just kind of, you know, if I can just have 10% of shit and 90% of good, I'm going to have a good life, you know. Yeah. And, and if you look at over a 10, 15, 20 year period, I'm better off managing my life like that and probably will get the best out of myself if I just make sure that, you know, there's, there's much more good times than there are bad times. So, mm. um, yeah. All right. <laughs> you did say earlier that yeah. some people say, I wouldn't change anything about my life. And you went, <laughs> maybe one main thing you'd change? Uh, oh, for, for, for sure, I would never have picked up a drink. And I always think for any youngster uh, out there, don't. Yeah, don't. where's the upside in that? Yeah, there absolutely is no, no upside. Don't, you know, try not smoke, don't drink, all, all them sort of stuff. Keep yourself fit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just think lead a healthy life. Um, you know, study successful people. You know, don't, have, don't necessarily have to be in your sport. Steve Davis was a great model, role model for me. Um, Michael Jordan, he was a basketball player. But again, I kind of looked, I kind of changed the way I approached snooker through watching Harry approach his basketball. Mm. You know, he was, a, he was an athlete, you know, you know, in bed early, eating the right foods. And I thought, well, why should I be any different? You know, you listen to Jeff Bezos. He likes to be in bed, gets his eight hours sleep, likes to do, you know, doesn't like to pack up his diary. And I just think, well, I, you can learn. He's a successful person, so I can learn something from him that I can apply to my own life. And I just think, just kind of, just, just read, you know, just tuning up. It's like a Ferrari, it needs tuning up. And sometimes just a little tweak here and there can make all the difference, you know. And, and I just think just... Down the A1. Yeah, down the A1. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, yeah, so there's a lot of things I would have done differently, you know, like not drinking and, and, and I probably, it's a bit late now, but I probably wouldn't have took snooker up either. <laughs> that was another mistake. Should we I just made. Uh, cut, cut? No, yeah. I'm, I'm being honest with you. I mean, I always say to young kids and their parents come up to so I said, don't let him play. <laughs> I said, don't let him play this game. My own kids, I was like, you're not playing snooker. I said, if you decide to play snooker, you're on your own. I said, because I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not supporting that. It's a bad sport. It can cause you a lot of damage. Unless you're Stephen Hendry, Steve Davis, John Higgins, Mark Williams, me, Judd Trump, Selby, Robertson. Forget it. The others are wasted. You know, it's just a waste of a life. And even some of them names that I've mentioned to you, even some of them, I just think, yeah, they're good at what they do, but if they if they could equally be good at something else I would have said go for the other thing <laughs> because I just think snooker is just a, a really really tough sport you know you're stuck indoors there's no natural light draw the curtains pitch black you're in there for five six hours you don't talk to anyone because you're focused and you've got to concentrate any little bit of concentration you can ruin your day if it's if it's broken and you just think hey that's not healthy do you know what I'm saying? That's not a good way to spend your life, you know. If you look at a lot of snooker players, they, they don't know how to have a conversation because they don't talk. And you just think, really, life's all about 
you know, getting the buzz and the joy of life. So for me, I've kind of detached from snooker, you know, for the last 20 years. They don't see me at a venue. A lot of players go, where are, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I, I have a life, you know. I, I, I like to enjoy doing other things. You know, I, I can turn up at a match at 2 o'clock. I'm on at 2, but at 1.50... I put my shirt and tie on. I don't need to practice. You know, I'm not that bothered. You know, if, if I, you know, I've been playing this game for 30 years or whatever. You know, if I ain't ready now, I'm, you know, another 20 minutes on the practice table, and another this, and it ain't making no difference. So I kind of, um, yeah, I've kind of learned to just sort of, like I said, you know, I, I would, I wouldn't have chosen. I probably would have chose golf. I probably would have chose Formula One. Uh, or some sort of driving thing. I love driving. I just think, hey, you, you never feel unhappy driving a car at speed and sort of getting the grip round the bend. So I, th- I think I would have chose a different sport or, or a sport that allowed me to be more at home. You know, so the travelling can be hard with snooker. Mm. So like if maybe you're a footballer or something. You know, you get to stay at home Monday to Friday. You go away for the weekend. Yeah, that that that'd suit me down to the ground. You know. <laughs> Love it. Let's do a snooker quick fire and then let's do the main quick fire. Yeah. So, in an interview with the BBC, Ronnie, the quote If you look at the younger players coming through, they're not that good, really. Most of them would do well as half decent amateurs, but not even amateurs. They are so bad. Was that something you said in emotion or did you mean that? And what did you mean? Yeah, I just, do you know what it is? Is I kind of look around and I just think, where's the next crop of players coming through and I think well when I was a kid you know you you kind of like you dedicated your life to just playing snooker whereas a lot of them there they're on their phones they're having a laugh they're chatting with their mate they're hitting a few balls and I just think there's no quality in their in in their in their preparation you know and I I used to be like that a little bit not a lot but now and again and 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 it wouldn't feel right but these guys are doing it every day of the week and I'm like, you, you can't become a, a brilliant at what you do if you're approaching your practice like that. What you want to practice like that, you want to live your life like that. And then when it comes to playing the match, you want to then become serious and you want to become disciplined. And it just doesn't, it's not like turning a tap on. It's like you have to train yourself in practice and in your preparation to be able to perform in the match. So it becomes like second nature. And I just kind of just thought, you know, this is a sport that I love, and I and I and I and I just want to, and I and I see a lot of talent out there going wasted, and it was just kind of like my way of kind of like, hopefully, because what worked for me was someone doubting me, someone saying, you know, um, Ronnie's not going to do this, Ronnie's not going to do that, and that doubt used to used to I used to think I'm going to prove you wrong, mm-hmm. and I just thought, well, if that worked for me, I'm hoping that by my, me saying what I said would definitely hit a note. If there's 20 people out there with the ability to be the best, maybe 10 of them will take it in a negative way, but there'll be 10 that will go, you know what? I'm going to show him. That's just what I needed to hear. Yeah. And it was great because I played Jordan Brown. I call him JB. Because we're trying to make the snooker players sound a bit cooler. You know, like in golf, they go JB, J or TW. In snooker, it's like, you know, Dave. Martin Gould, Dave, this, yeah, yeah. So like, I like to shorten their names a bit. So when I played JB, Jordan Brown in the final of the Welsh, and um, and he beat me, and I, and I said to him, I said, look, you played unbelievable, fantastic. And he went, you know what? He said, and I had a great chat with him, and he said, you know what? He said, the one thing that drove me on to want to be with when you started, when you said the people outside the top 50 could play, he said, and that inspired me, and I went, brilliant, job well done. I mean, that guy used to work in a petrol garage, mm. and he used to go to the club, and he'd hit a few balls, like I said, have a chat, have a laugh, but he said, since that moment, 
He says, I'm five hours, six hours a day. And I'm thinking, I want to play Ronnie. I want to prove him wrong. Yeah. And he goes and wins a tournament. So for me, it, it got the desired vote. Ten of them will still think I'm an arsehole. The other ten are thinking, you know what? I'm a much better snooker player for what Ronnie said. So, mm. you know, I'm only interested in the ones that want to do well and take the positive from it. The other ten, they'll moan about anything. So yeah. you're kind of like, you know, it had the desired effect. And for me, I, I mean, I love the game. And there's a few players on the tour that I would should be winning and doing better and and and, and they're not and, and it's, it's a shame really do you know what I mean so yeah. um, like, like I said you know it was the timing of saying certain things I wouldn't have said that 15 years ago but I can kind of say it and get away with it and everyone's going to laugh at it bit of a joke I'm kind of being a bit serious not serious it's like you know I can't lose by anything I say really do you yeah. know what I mean when it comes to the snooker world, you know, obviously I don't go in there and I'm not negative and I'm not this. It's kind of all said in a bit of fun, but also like, you know, there's a little, there's a little dig there, you know, but in a nice way, you know, mm. I'm trying to sort of get the best out in people really, you know, and um, so, yeah, so, um, yeah, sorry for the ones that got offended, but happy for Jordan Brown. <laughs> <laughs> So in our research, it's estimated that you've made over twelve million pounds in snooker winnings. Mm. Do you keep count of the money? Do you have? Did, did you even know that? No, not really. Um, no, no, I never really um, look at anything like that. You know, like the statistics of snooker. You know, like I said, I always played just for the love of the sport, um, for, for, to try and win the titles, and just, just. Just for me, it's just I, I like playing. You know, I, I like mm. competing. I like performing. I like entertaining the crowds. I don't. I might say entertaining the crowds. I like the buzz that I feel when there's a crowd. If I'm on it, I know deep down that they're enjoying it as well. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> if I'm having a good time, I know they're having a good time, and I yeah. know because I've seen a lot of snooker players, and I know that they don't do it how I do it, and I just think, well, that's that's nice to be able to let other people so that's why I love doing the exhibitions I go to a club and it's like this dirty old club because that's what snooker clubs are proper grimy but I love them because yeah. it takes me back to when I was a kid and I was in these dark snooker halls where you could smell the carpet the this the that and um, and I go there and there's like 150 people and all sitting there and they're all dressed up they're all looking forward to the night and I think you're going to get a good night tonight <laughs> and I go bang 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 and you can introduce them going oh 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 <laughs> And when I'm hitting the ball, it's like making a lovely noise. And then I open the balls up and I put it down there and they go, oh, and, you go, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm enjoying it. Because I'm thinking, this geezer's having an orgasm. You know what I mean? like, he's been with his missus for 20 years. And he's forgot what it's like to have an orgasm. And yet he's come to watch me play snooker. And this geezer's getting really excited. And, and I see him at the end of it. And I go, oh, mate, that's unbelievable. Why you hit that? Oh, I've never watched everyone play, but no one does it like you. Know, I go, and, I get it, and I love that he's paid maybe 70, 800 quid for a ticket. And I think, that's a cheap night. Mm. He's had a great mm -hmm. night. He's gone out for wonderful. And that's, that's a great feeling to be able to do that. On a, in a, it's, like, it's like actors, they go on TV, they do what they do. But when you get on theatre and in stage and you've got a live, live audience like that and it's not televised, but it's just raw and you can do stuff that I do in an exhibition, I'll get excited by that, you know. I, mm. I, I love that feeling, you know. Yeah, you can see that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Tony Knowles says, you're not the best snooker player ever. So do you think you are? And if you don't, who do you think is no, the greatest? No, he was right. He was right. Really? Yeah, yeah. John Higgins, for me, is the greatest. Oh, wow. I'd, listen, it's very hard for me because uh, growing up, Hendry was my hero. Davis was my hero. But Hendry, kind of, you couldn't ignore what Hendry done in the sport. So he kind of become my new hero. And I went, you know what? He is the king of snooker. And 
if I didn't have that admiration for Hendry, because I was a kid looking up to Hendry, I was 14, he was 21, he was world champion. I was like, this is, this, he's who I want to be. Me and John Higgins were the same age. But if John Higgins was seven years older than me, I probably would have said John Higgins is the greatest snooker player I've ever seen. Because he, like I said earlier in the interview, he's the most complete player. If he was going to build a snooker player, John Higgins would be what you would build. You'd go, you know what, he's going to last the test of time he's definitely going to win world championship he's definitely going to be number one he's definitely going to when he's on he's unplayable you know it's like if you was a betting man bet on John Higgins for the rest of your life because you'd be a very wealthy man you just you just you, but if you start to bet on Ronnie you know it could go good it might not go good it's a bit of a risk like you'll have a few sleepless nights you don't get that with John Higgins so when Tony Noll said that and Graham Dot, Dot said that as well I was like, yeah, I totally agree with you. I can't, I can't not, you know, but what I've kind of managed to do, and I, and I thank John Higgins because he's inspired me to be a better player. I looked at him and thought, I'm never going to be as good a safety player, but I kind of need to get, I need to try and improve in my safety to, you know, if he's at 10, if I can get to eight, that's, that's enough. Whereas before I was at two or three, I need to get that up to eight, you know what I mean? And uh, he's inspired me to become a better player. Um, to become a different player, to become a better match player. But yeah, I totally agree. John Higgins is um, probably the best player that I've ever that I've ever played. But it's hard because obviously Hendry's my hero, and I've took some good items off of Hendry. But I was early in my career then, and Hendry was in his peak. Whereas John Higgins, we've kind of we're both the same age, so we kind of like you can't. I can't. No one had an advantage because we were both. It's like, it's like a Formula One car. The two Mercedes going head to head. You know, there was no, no one had an advantage. We, were, you know, we both come up in the same era, and um, yeah, for me, he's the most complete player I've ever seen. Mm. Great. Mm. Right. And I don't feel bad about saying that. You know, no. maybe no. I couldn't have admitted that fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, because, like you say, that would have been a weakness. That would have been yeah. like probably that's not the sort of thing I'd want John Higgins to have known when he was twenty-one, twenty-two, because he would have probably yeah. gained strength from it. But now I'm forty-five, and I don't really care. I can sit down at a table and go, you know what, John, you actually were a better player than me. Yeah. I know I've got more tournaments and one whatever, but I just think that's just through. I don't know what it was through. Maybe I was just, maybe I'm a better player than I, than I give myself credit for. Mm. I don't know. Um, and maybe my style of play, I could beat certain players a lot easier than John Higgins' style of play. You know, yeah. like I'm, I'm a bit like I'm either on or I'm off. I either blow people away. Or I get blown away. So I think, yeah, I, don't, I, I can't quite work out why he hasn't won more than me. But, you know, we, we've both done pretty well. Mm. Yeah, I bet if you ask some of them who's the greatest player that's ever lifted, say you. Yeah, I mean, like if you said, like, you know, John Higgins, he'd probably say, you know, me, um, you know, uh, Hendry, maybe, you know, a lot of people say maybe it's Selby. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know. But, yeah, I think a lot of the... I think a lot of the snooker fans that don't really... They don't really know the intricacies of the game would probably all say me. But then if you get people that really know the game, they would probably either say me, Hendry or Higgins. Us three would be the three that they would kind of, you know, if you had like 100 people, you'd probably get 30, say Ronnie, 30, say Higgins, 30, say Hendry, and yeah. whatever, you know. Um so yeah, yeah, maybe maybe a lot, a lot of the snooker fans kind of like because of my style and like I said, the way I do it, and they just go, oh, I love the way Ronnie plays. And they all want to play like me. They're all like the rocket and this and that. 
And uh, so I kind of get, I'll get that vote if you like. But um, but if you just break it down into pure skill, tenacity, temperament, you know, I'd say Higgins and Hendry have got a much better temperament than me. Um, I've just managed to sort of, um, I think it's my, my, my Italian sort of passion that has kind of drove me through and I've played, I've played from emotion. Most of the time I play from emotion, whereas John and Hendry, they're like tough Scotch people. They, they're, they're unbreakable, <laughs> you know, whereas me, I fall apart, but then I build myself back up and I fall apart and I build myself up and everyone's like, oh, has he done that one week? And then he looks all right this week, yeah. you know, so, but, you know, I think, I think that's what kind of draws people to, to, to give me the nod, if you mm. like, of being the best player that's ever played, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. You talked about betting yeah. earlier. Have you ever been offered like a, a bribe? Is max, match fixing a big thing? Yeah, years ago, someone said to me, oh, I need to meet you. And he's the sort of guy you don't want to get on the wrong side of. And I but like, because you were a people pleaser, you said <laughs> yeah, yes. I went, yeah, of course. And he was a friend, you know. I, yeah. I, I've, I've, you know, every year you meet people and, you know, um, Obviously, like where my dad has been, I've kind of got everywhere I go, oh, I spent five years with your dad. And he's like, lunatic, basically. <laughs> I'm like, oh, how you doing? Yeah, my dad spoke about it. He said, you're a really lovely guy. He said, anytime you're here, anytime you're here, I'll do that for you. Don't worry. And I'm like, okay. So I've got, I've got uncles everywhere. <laughs> and um, yeah, so like one guy found me, he said, Nick, Nick want to have a meet with you over the forest. And I thought, oh shit, what have I done now? And then we went for a little walk and he went, you know, did it? I went, Nah, mate. I said I couldn't do it. I said I couldn't do it. I said my career would be over. I said I just I, and, and plus I just it's not in me. I said I don't I don't play snooker for money. I'm not interested in it. I just I just feel so dirty. And he went, that's nah, fine. That's fine. I thought at least I haven't upset him or like done something I should have done. So yeah, it was just that. And that was a long, long time ago. I'm going back now, maybe 25 years now. Mm. So. Uh, the snooker got more clean since then. Was that yeah, common? Or? Uh, I don't think it was common at the time. I don't think, um, you know, I don't think snooker. Well, you had the Francisco's, the Sylvina. I think Peter, wasn't it? Peter Francisco, he got done for match fixing. I think um, that's the only one I can really remember. Um, yeah, that one. And then, and then I think a lot over the last 10 years where a lot of the players... They struggle to make ends meet, basically, a lot of the yeah. players. So it's, it's tough for them on tour, you know, and sometimes like they're, they're, they, they have to do things just to kind of survive. You know, some people will kind of go to China and buy a load of cheap T-shirts and bring them back and make their money just to pay for their trip. Some people get loads of cigarettes and stuff it in their queue case and get home and go here, this, that's it pays for their trip. It allows them to play snooker because if you don't win tournaments, you know, you, d you don't really get pay paid, basically. Mm. So um, it's, it's tough for a lot of them. And I think there was a, a time where a lot of the players um, were taking bungs or fixing matches. And then I think after the Stephen Lee thing, I think they kind of put out a strong message that, mm. you know, anyone that does mess about and gets caught, you're basically your career is over. And I think now snooker is a much cleaner sport for it. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I think, yeah, it's sort of, you know, but I never like to criticise someone because I don't think anyone, if someone's driven to, to lose a match to make money, there's a reason why. That, you know, if they were comfortable and they didn't have money problems or whatever, they wouldn't even think about doing that because, mm. you know, most new players love the game and they want to win. But unless you know someone's circumstances and what their predicament is, and I do, 
you know, I know a lot of these snooker players. It's like that they're, they're struggling financially. You know, it's not easy, and you know, so I never, I never, I never, I never feel like you know that they've done something wrong. Yeah, don't judge. Don't 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 judge unless you walked walked in that yeah. guy's shoes, you know. And and I'm around it, so I know what they're going on. And I feel a bit sorry for a lot of the players, but it is what it is. And mm. you know, they sign up to play, and they you know they know, they know what they're 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 in for, you know. So, mm. but yeah, no, nah, it's a lot cleaner there than I, than it was because of the Stephen Lee twelve year ban. I think that kind yeah. of scared everyone a little bit. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, your first world championship win, I understand you wore pink nail varnish. Is no, that true? That wasn't a world championship. Oh. That was um that was just recently. I think this is why was, we always check. Yeah, this was um for something. I don't know what it was for. See, my memory is so, so bad. But it was going back October. My mate said, Would you wear pink nail varnish for some Would it can- was it cancer research? I think no? so. Was it cancer? Yeah. Do you know Harry? Breast oh, breast cancer, cancer yeah. For breast cancer. Yeah. And he said, Would you take a picture? Um, and put it on social media I went yeah of course I will I said actually I'll play in it if you want and he went that's a great idea <laughs> yeah. so I just thought just to create awareness yeah, and awesome. I think like, like 10 years ago I'd have been like I'm not wearing pink nail varnish <laughs> your dad but now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like I need to be professional I like pink nail varnish and uh, and I went you know what I don't actually care anymore so yeah. if, it's, if it helps create awareness breast cancer for women mm. and da, 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 then why not you know um, at some point in your life you've got to be able to feel like you can give back and not worry about receiving so much you know and yeah. I've taken so much from snooker that you know I'm happy to like you know uh, give up my own f- gains if you like yeah. in, 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 in order to have a bit of fun to kind of be a bit free with it and go you know what who really cares? But then what really was hard was when I was looking down, all I could see was this pink in my eyes. <laughs> I was thinking, that ain't good. <laughs> but I thought, I've committed now. I've got to play the whole tournament with it. But as soon as I finished, I was like, I've got to get it off. Because <laughs> it just kept putting me off. It was like, you know, like I, was, I wasn't used to seeing this, this sort of colour in my face. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was, the, that was the story behind the nail varnish. Right. Mm. So I'm going to share with you something I often get nervous about in interviews because yeah. I, I think we, we must have interviewed maybe 165-ish people, would you say? Loads. And Harry was asking me at the start. And I, I'm quite similar to you in that I want to get on well with people. I don't want to upset them, get under their skin. Yeah. But of course, sometimes those kind of questions make good interviews. Yeah. And Harry was saying, you know, how do you like to prepare for an interview? And I want to ask some questions that are a bit edgy. Yeah. But I'm kind of always scared of the moment maybe when I upset some. I mean, we've got to know each other, so that, that, that helps. But yeah. maybe you upset them or maybe they just get up and leave or whatever. So when we were researching, obviously, we find all these interviews with you putting on an Australian accent, yeah. d- making noises, just doing one word answers yeah, yeah, and grunts yeah. and things. Yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking, oh, I hope Ronnie doesn't do that for me. No. Tell us about those sort of random interviews I'm where you clearly weren't asked. I'm actually really good. You know, when I'm talking to people, I really like to, I like to give values. So yeah, this, this is great, when by give, the way. When I go snooker, I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, I just want to get this done, dust and get out there. I'm thinking it's so important to me that every person that's come here to watch goes away thinking that was magic. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I'm here to do is provide, you know, I might be a bit quiet when I do my action. I'm not like Dennis Taylor giving loads of gags. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on a performance where you go, I've played this game. Fucking hell. That's unbelievable. And and they're nudging their mate. And that's what I get joy out of. So I like to give like value. 
Even yeah. in my interviews, I'm like, you know what, I can sit here and be a bit cagey, but I'm not a cagey person, so I like to be open. But with that openness, one day I'm going to feel like shit. And that openness is going to sound really shit. And I'm going to say stuff that people are going to go, why does he say that? But I think you can't have the good without having the bad. You can have the robot. The robot's never going to put a foot wrong. Mm. You can have the Australian. He's going to be so upbeat, <laughs> right? Because Australians are upbeat. You can have the scarcer because they're really funny and they can make... But I'm like me. And, I, and, and, and when I talk like me... I can be very positive, very upbeat, but I can be very down on myself as well. And what I really struggled with was, uh, was at the snooker was is that I would do like something and I'd get a letter or an email every week. You've done this. And they'd use certain words which were quite threatening. And I'd take it quite personally. I'd think, you know what, I've, I've been a naughty boy here. And then in the end, I started to get, I started to monitor my own behaviour. And I thought, I'm not really doing a lot wrong. I'm just saying how I feel. And if saying what I feel is really bad, then maybe I shouldn't play snooker no more. But I love snooker. And my mates see that. And I said, I keep getting these letters through and all that sort of stuff. And then in the end, I went, I'm going to be Australian because they don't like me being me. So I might as well try and be somebody else that's really positive because they want someone that's positive. So I'll go Australian. So I was Australian, mate. We're up, we're up for this today, mate. We're going we're gonna to smash the English, mate. We're going, they're going down. <laughs> So I can't, kind of found, when I went into that mode, I was super positive. So I thought there's nothing they can do with that because I'm positive. Um, the robot, you can't, you know, we're, we're living in a world of technology, AI, everything. <laughs> we're going to be controlled by robots at some day. You know, that, that person that's at the checkout, she don't realise that a robot's going to be doing it. So we're, we're all good with robots. We want, we want a robotic society. So I was like, yep. Yeah, no, I'm here to play snooker and it's very good. So uh, you can't put a foot wrong when you talk like that. So I thought, they want a robot, they can have a robot. They want positive, they can have Australian. I'll, I'll go anywhere <laughs> they want to go with it. But they don't want Ronnie. They I don't just, want Ronnie. If I was the interviewer, I'd just... They don't ah! want Ronnie. So whatever we give them has not got to be Ronnie. I can go Thai, I can go Chinese, I can do I can do any. I, can go, well, I can't really speak Spanish, but I could learn. But I just kind of just thought, you know what? So, so I had to kind of like put on these different sort of things. And, 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 it, and, it, and it worked, really. And then it got to the point where my mate was going, what, what's going on? And I told him, I said, look, I've got these... Fucking, they drive me mad at World Snooker. I said, don't stop sending me letters and emails. I said, I ain't got time to reply to him. I said, because I just want to play Snooker. He went, give me your contract. I went, what do you mean? He went, I'm going to give it to my mate. He's a lawyer. He said, we're going to check it out. He said, next time you get a letter, give it to me. So I went, all right. So I got him on my contracts, and they looked at it, and they went, da-da-da-da. So I'll get a letter from Will Snooker. Da-da-da-da-da. So I went, here, here's the letter. I said, they've sent me one. So he said, all right, we're going to send one back. Anyway, it's like chapter and verse out of the Bible, like the one they sent back. We point you to this and that and that and the history of that thing and all that. And I read it, I went, wow. I said, that's a beauty. <laughs> I got really excited. I thought, lovely, let's see what they say to that. Anyway, they get the letter and they send one back and they went, we are not going to respond to your letter because you obviously haven't got lawyer's advice. <laughs> I didn't know that. that I didn't know that that was... Uh, I didn't know that you had to get lawyer's advice if you'd sent a letter from a lawyer. But I thought, she's great, I'm learning. I'm learning here, you know. So, so now they've kind of had to go and spend some money on good lawyers, because these are good lawyers. <laughs> anyway, it happened once or twice. Anyway, letters stopped. They was like, you know what? <laughs> it was too much hassle for them. And I just realised that they, they were prepared to push me and push me because they knew that they could. 
But then once they realised that they had someone that was bigger and stronger than them, mm. they thought, you know what, we can't push these people around there because he's got his shit together, mate. He's got a proper little team on the firm. <laughs> <laughs> and now I don't get no letters. Actually, you know, it's, it's quite a pleasant world now, you know. But And I was ready to turn away from snooker because I thought, I don't want to deal with this bullshit. Mm. Don't bring me bullshit, you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, one minute I'm good for the game, one minute I'm shit for the game. Like, make your fucking mind up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> you know, but they want to whack you when they want to whack you and then they want to, like, nosh you off when they want to nosh you off. So I don't like using that word, but you know what I mean? Just have it right. I've it's actually like, never heard of that You phrase. know, they want to get their tongue up your ass, basically, <laughs> and just fucking, you know, and you think, hold on a minute, just be consistent. Just be consistent with me. Yeah. And I just got fed up with all that, that stuff. So, um... Anyway, the lawyers have been great, and the lawyers are still there waiting just in case. <laughs> and it's fantastic. I feel like I've got right angels on, on my yeah. shoulders. Just kind of so, so basically, I, I like it. Like I can go and cause, not cause trouble, but do what I want, knowing that I've got a good team of people behind me to go, you know what, this isn't a problem. This is our game. So, you know, it's like, you, you know, you, you kind of have to, it's a bit of an unfair fight if Mike Tyson's going to fight me. You think, well, hold on a minute, he's a snooker player. You're, you're a professional boxer. It's not... So that's what they were doing to me. And now I've kind of got, I've got Klitschko in now. Or I've got Muhammad Ali fighting, you know. So it's mm. a fair fight now. So they can send me as many letters as they like, but be prepared to get a few back. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> be prepared to go to your lawyer to get advice. Because some silly little letter that you think you're being clever with and using these little, like, threatening words ain't going to work. So I kind of like, that's what I'm saying. When you get a good team of people around, you start to realise, you know, you know, that, that, you know, don't, it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not prepared to have people, you know, um, abuse their position, if you yeah. like, you know, um, and it's just about being professional, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really like playing the professional route now because I've got a team of people around me that are professional and, I, and, it, and it's like I'm very resourceful. Whereas mm. before I really, I wasn't, I was just on my own, kind of quite insular and just play snooker, but now I'm resourceful. It's like, you know, whatever way they want to play it. I'm, I'm up for it, mate, you know, so it feels like I'm, I'm in a much better place to be able to, to deal with whatever, whatever comes my way, really. Mm. <laughs> yeah. this, is it. this is freaking awesome. Um, right, we've got one more and then we're going to do a super quick fire. Yeah. So I challenge you after this last question to answer each one in 15 seconds or less. Yeah. That's the challenge. Um, but one more. You've called Barry Hearn's management of snooker a dictatorship. Um, do you think things can change? Uh, probably not, but I understand why he does what he does and the way he runs his business. And I think he enjoys sort of like the thought that people are dependent on him, you know, that they feel like they've got nowhere to go. It's like, I, this, is my, this is what I'm putting on offer and you're only going to play for me and you're not going to be able to do it and you've got to get permission from me to do anything. And I think he kind of enjoys that he's got people under that sort of, in that place, if you like. And that would never work for me because I kind of like to kind of make my own choices, make my own decisions. And I don't really want to have to get permission for someone to say, can I do this? Can I do that? So before as I kind of find it a bit sort of um, like I was being suffocated in a way. And and I kind of like started to educate myself on business because I thought I'm not going to be able to play snooker and just do this and be happy. 
So I started to look into different opportunities. So I started to work with Eurosport. I started to get involved with property. I've started to got a really good, like I was saying to you before, an advisor that I invest in certain things. And, you know, I kind of do lots and lots of other stuff. And I kind of feel like that basically I've learned that it's just the way that model is designed and some people fit into that workforce really well. I happen just to not fit into that workforce really well, but I still wanted to play snooker. So I've kind of got it to a stage now where it doesn't feel like a dictatorship. I'm not bothered about, you know, um, the, 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 the carrots that get dangled. If you do well in this, you're getting that. I don't want to be in that. I don't want to be. I don't actually care what tournament I'm playing. I just, they're all the same to me. It's just a place, they provide a platform for me to go and play snooker because that's what I enjoy doing. I don't care if I win or lose because I've created this fantastic life outside of snooker where I can have freedom, where I can kind of go, well, can we do this? Can we do that? And it's not a problem. <laughs> In fact, it gets encouraged and we want to work with you. And I'd and I much rather a conversation of where someone wants to work with me and it's 50-50 and someone says, well, I don't know about that. We'll let you know. And then you're kind of waiting and then it's a no. And, and then you go like, we will tell you in the contract it, that you signed it. And you think, hold on a minute here. Drop me out with you in your silly contract. You know what I mean? So that's why I've kind of gone elsewhere. And it's been the best thing I've ever done because actually all the other stuff that I do outside of snooker is much better, much more exciting. And and it will go on much longer. So So if I finish playing snooker tomorrow... That's that done. But all the other stuff that I've put in place, like the academies that we're doing in the Far East now, which is fantastic, that's another thing I'm excited about, that's all going to be, once I finish playing, all that's still going to continue. And I, and I took a year out of doing nothing, and I was like, being a snooker player that doesn't play snooker, it's quite a boring life. So now I've kind of created other interests and other things, and now I just get excited every day by what I do. And and now I just kind of feel so detached from snooker in that I don't need it to support whatever I want to do and to, to enjoy my life. But I just choose to go and play it and have fun with it. And I think that's probably why over the last five or six years that I've enjoyed my snooker more than I ever have done. And, and like I said, you know, I, I'm one of them people that if I'm forced into doing something... I will find a way of how to make my life better. So like I said, you know, um, you know, certain things happen and you can, I could either accept it, but I know I'm never going to be able to accept it. So I kind of go, well, I've got to like find my peace and where, where I'm happy. Mm. I've got to find my happy place. And, and that's what people do. They try to screw me down, but by screwing me down, they just lose me even more because I'm not one of them that's going to be, it's like Braveheart when he was on the slab. That's what you're going to have to do to me, mate. You're going to have to put me on that slab and you're going to have to go chop his head off because if you don't do that, I'm going to keep coming at you and I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep surviving and I'm going to, and I'm going to keep coming out, landing on my feet. One thing I know is that wherever shit I go through, I end up landing on my feet. <laughs> it's like amazing. I just think, wow, how did I come out of that? <laughs> so no matter what gets thrown at me, like with a lawyer situation, that only happened because I surrounded myself with good people and, and it took one to know one. So my mate's a very good person and he knows that I'm a good person, but he's on another level. He's gone, hold on, I can take care of that for you. I've gone, all right, cool. All right. You know, so it's kind of, I always end up 
find the right people because mm. I'm actually quite a good guy and I'm not a piss taker, I'm not a liberty taker, I've got a good heart, my kindness, I can be a bit of a people pleaser, um, but I've toughened up over the last four, five, six years. Uh, I'm still a bit of a softy, um, but I don't suffer fools anymore and life's a lot better for it. And even though I do still think it is a dictatorship, it doesn't bother me anymore because I've removed myself from being in, a, in that regime, if you like. Mm. So it's kind of hard in a way because I go to snooker and I, I like, um, it's kind of like I feel like I don't fit in anymore because everyone's living that life. Like 99% of them snooker players, that's all they've got. And that's all they are. And I see the, I see the pressure and I see the stress and I just see, I see, I see it and I kind of just think, oh God, I don't really want to be around that energy. You know, I don't really want to be in a room full of people that are living that sort of life where they think they've had a result because they've got a few tournaments. But really, mm. it's just like, it's a bag of, it's not great. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, it's nothing, I couldn't get excited by that. So when I see them excited by it and that's all they've got, I find it quite sad in a way. So I kind of didn't, I didn't, I looked at that and thought, I don't want to be one of them. So I need to kind of like create a life where I'm inspired by people. But I still like playing snooker. So, mm. you know, I, I play their tournaments. I have a bit of fun. Win or lose, don't really give a monkeys, you know, and it, and it just suits me really, you know what I mean, to, mm. to kind of take it for what it is. But I understand why they, why it's set up how it is. And it's, it's, it's a good way of, you know, keeping everyone under manners. Yeah. And if you're happy to be kept under manners, then, you know, you'll keep kind of like going along with it. But mm. I was never going to be one of them people and I never will be. So, you know, what do you do? You, you know, you, you either go brave up that's it, I'll, you know, I chop my own head off because I'm not going to live like that. Or I'll go, you know what, I'm a survivor, I'm a fighter. It's a wonderful world out there. There's loads of opportunities and there's people out there that do want to work with me and get excited about working with me. And I kind of, and you know, you know the good ones and the bad ones. You know, a good one goes, yeah, it's not a problem. As soon as they start putting problems in front of me, I'm like, <laughs> bye. <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm now down to one person that I talk to at World Snooker, and I've told him that if he comes up and starts sort of like pushing too much, I said, I won't talk to you either. <laughs> I said, You're the only person that, that can come and talk to me. I said, Everyone else is barred. They don't get nothing from me. I've got to go through the lawyers, <laughs> my friend's lawyers. <laughs> But you, you, I'll talk to you. I said, but if you carry on, that I'll, I'll cut that one off as well. I said, so you're the last man standing. I said, so don't push it. And he goes, okay, well, okay. All right, cool. As long as we know where we are. And it works well. Yeah. I love the girls that work at World Snooker. There's two or three of them. I love them. You know, they're good mm. as gold. You know, and I'm, you know, I've got a great relationship with the security guys at World Snooker because it's tough, tough, tough mm. what they do. And we kind of live, live on that circuit together. So, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I'm just a people's person. At the end of the day, I'm a people person. I don't like authority. You put authority in front of me, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to go like a cage animal, mate. <laughs> but I'm a bit smarter now, whereas before I'd throw tantrums and this and that. Now I go, you know what, let's just be a little bit smart about it. Like, how can I turn this into, to, into an advantage for me? Mm. You know, and, um, you know, that's, that's how I've changed, basically. But, but that's just come through education. That's just come through surrounding myself with clever, intelligent people have gone, Ron, look, there's another way of doing it. Have you thought about doing it like this? And I went, yeah. wow. I said, that's a blind that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But you need to be resourceful. Yeah. To have that sort of, you know, to be able to do that, you kind of got to be resourceful. And, 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 and hopefully I have become resourceful for them as well. You know, they might go, Ron, can you do this? And I'm like, you know what? Anything for you. <laughs> Do 
you see what I'm saying? So it's like yeah. a, it's like a, you build good relationships, and you know, if, and if you know, if you, if I can be of service to them, I am of service because mm. I know that it's a, it's a two way thing, you know, and and um, and, that, and, that, and that's a good way of. Hopefully that's explained <laughs> the situation. This is still the quick fire round. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that's good. It's good. We've actually got the real quick fire round. Now. Okay, cool. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and this is a part two. We had a, a quick break uh, on the Disruptive Entrepreneur interview with Ronnie O'Sullivan. So welcome to everyone on Ronnie's channel. Welcome to everyone on my channel. Welcome back if you're listening or watching on YouTube or the podcast or you're TikToking or wherever you are. <laughs> right, Ronnie, this is going to be a big challenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got seven or eight um, quick fire questions, about 15 seconds yeah. to answer each one. Yeah. So first off is, what's the best advice you ever remember receiving? Best advice I ever remember receiving? Oh, I've had loads of little gems, but one was from a friend. He said, just drive your own car. And he's a bit of a, like a maverick as well. And it was just like, I took that as just have faith in yourself. Go where you want to be. Don't be a sheep. Don't follow. Just do what, do whatever you feel that is um, the right thing to do. Talking about driving your own car, what, what is your favourite car? Just randomly, what, what one car? Favourite car, if I, could, if I could have one, I'd love to own a Bugatti because I just think it's the ultimate car. But as an everyday sort of car, I, I like the R8 V10. I find it does, does everything I need it to do and more. Everything you need it to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? The worst advice? Ah, uh, we, we kind of mentioned it in the interview when people just say, just be positive, just think positive. And my mum does it quite a lot. You just be positive. And I'm like, oh. And, then when the, and I know that's shit advice because when I first met Steve Peters, he went, I'm not going to tell you to be positive because that just doesn't work. So I kind of like, you know, yeah, that, that's the one thing that annoys me more than anything. Okay. So this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does that word disruptive mean to you? Disruptive means shaking it up. So if I was to, uh, the best way to explain disruptive was when Donald Trump came in and he just total disruption of whatever they thought was... The world. Yeah, yeah. So like, there's no way he's going to get in and eventually he becomes an uh, American. And then they go, well, he's never going to get in, you know, so for the second term but he managed to get 75 million people to vote with him. So in a way, he's kind of disrupted whatever everyone thought was the norm and, and that people just, you know, um, just wanted a change, I suppose. And it's just, it's like every now and again, someone comes on and goes, we're changing the rules of the game now. And everyone goes, you can't do that. And he goes, yeah, we are. And they don't care about the consequences. And I suppose I've been a bit like that in my snooker, if you like, in, in a way. You kind of ruffle feathers. I remember when you played left-handed, mm. I was just like, wow, Yeah, this is the best yeah, you're thing not, Snooker's ever seen. Yeah, you're not afraid to kind of just do whatever you feel like you need to do. And, and it can kind of come across as arrogant or a little bit like cocky in some ways. But I think that's what, you know, that's why people love Muhammad Ali, because he's just kind of like done things that people are like, what, yeah, why would you, you know what I mean? You know, you put yourself in danger, really, but you don't see it as danger. You just see it as kind of like a way of kind of just uh, how you live your life, I suppose. Yeah. If you could only pick one, snooker or running, one, not the other, which one would it be and why? Running, because I just think it's a lot healthier. I think if you, if you, if you exercise, you get the natural endorphins. Uh, you're outside in the sun, you kind of get to train with your friends. It's more of a team. Although it's an individual sport, it's still a team because you train in a group. And I just think it's just the people in running are just a, a really nice, it's a, it's a nice community of people. Mm. Yeah. We've got Timor. Okay. Um, is there anything wrong with the world that you'd like to see changed? 
Uh, I get, you know, you get these conspiracy theories. You get people to go, you know, this and that. And I'm like, I'm done with that. You know, I'm, I'm, I think I live in a great country. I've got great opportunities. Um, you know, I can go to the shops. I can buy food. I can go and buy a house. I can go and, you know, go to the running club. I can go into cookery school. I can, I can grab a cab. I can get on a super fast train to London. I'm like, what, what is wrong with this world? You know, there's, there's, there's plenty of parts of the world that you could be in that you can't do a lot of the stuff that I've just mentioned. So I don't buy into the conspiracy thing that there's, there's something wrong with this world. I just think, you know, um, I think my situation, I can only speak for my situation, I'm having a very good life and I enjoy the opportunities and I enjoy, you know, that you can't do everything you want to do. There are rules and you kind of just have to, like, you know, I said to my to, to a friend once, she said, oh, you know, anti-mask and this and that. I said, well, this, you have to have rules. I said, because if there was no rules, there'd be anarchy everywhere. I said, we all need to kind of like be a bit fearful of doing so. I said, otherwise it'd be like a, like the, the Great Western out there and become like John Wayne. I'm taking that, that's mine. It's just, it's just not going to work. If there was one person, let's say this interview finishes yeah. and you could have one dream person come in and sit yeah. there and you get to watch them from that seat for yeah. an hour, who would you love that person to be? Muhammad Ali. And alive? Alive, I would probably say, um, I'd love to, 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 to talk to Jeff Bezos. I just think he's quite, a, quite an interesting character and uh, yes, yeah, sort of, He's been a bit of a disruptor and kind of the self-belief to have that vision of what's coming. It's like, it's like he's ahead of time, mm. you know, it's sort of like, and, and I love people that embrace change. I think people that can't embrace change, they, they scare me because they're kind of, they end up getting left behind and you can kind of get left behind with them. So I try and sort of like surround myself with people that want to push the boundaries, that want to be disruptive. <laughs> I love someone that is a, a disruptor mm. because that's what it's about. We change, we evolve, we get better. I'm waiting to see the next disruptive snooker player that comes along and says, you know what, I'm taking this game to another level. And that's what we get excited by, people that are game changers. And I mm. think Jeff Bezos has, 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 has shown that and, and, and made a success of it in a way. And why Muhammad Ali? I just think as a sportsman, as a human being, um, you know, for what he stood up for, you know, he, he, he didn't go and fight in the army. He was like, I'm not going to go and fight people that have done nothing wrong to me. I'm not going to accept that I'm a black guy and I can't have the same rights as that white guy over there. Um, I'm not going to accept any of that. I am going to stand up for my people and I am going to be a spokesman for my, and I am going to make people believe that they can, you know, um, be like me. You know, what, you know, that's, you know, and, and, he, and he kind of didn't sit on the fence. He could have sat on the fence. He could have had a nice life. He could have, like, you know, avoided a lot of the things. But he was like, no, you know, you know, he, he managed to fulfill an amazing career. So for the boxing fans and everyone that loves boxing, he was just fantastic. For, for, the, for the way he spoke, um, he's just he's so engaging, so intelligent and so just pure beauty for me. He's a handsome guy, an athletic guy, a good husband. Um, and just a, a just a sort of, you know, if I was a black kid growing up and I had Muhammad Ali as my role model, he would make me think I am capable of, of anything, you know. Mm. Just to see that man just was just just incredible. And forget any human being to look at Muhammad Ali. Who wouldn't want to be Muhammad Ali? I mean, he's the most amazing human and specimen 
that I think I've ever seen. You know, he's so handsome, he's so beautiful, he talks so well. She'll, like, she'll leave you to it. Yeah, no, listen, listen, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed. I mean, for me, he's the most amazing human being that's ever yeah. walked the planet, you know. And, uh, and even when he was at his lowest, yeah. He's still getting there and you go, that's mad, you know, he was still just had that fire in his belly, you know, just, uh, just incredible. Mm. I know we've already done this question, so to everyone watching the live, we've actually done the main interview already for the disruptive entrepreneur, but this would be a great one to leave it with. And again, if we could get in about 15 seconds, mm. how do you want your career to be remembered? Uh, I think I want my career to be remembered as someone that was a bit disruptive, maybe, that come along, that uh, played from the heart, played with his emotions, kind of wasn't probably tailor-made to play snooker my temperament probably wasn't um suited to it as much but i kind of managed to come through and and play the game in a, in a way that allowed me to be who i am and still be successful and yeah and just someone that's loved their sport well maybe had a bit of a love-hate relationship with their sport but really loved it a lot more than than i hated it and the hate only come because i loved it so much mm. so yeah and where are you most active now online, if anyone wants to follow you? I mean, I don't know anyone who wouldn't know of who you are, but if they wanted to follow you, yeah. catch a book of yours or something like that, where should they go? Um, what, when you say like followers in... As like, in social media, you... Yeah, so I mean, obviously we're Instagram I'm here. I probably engage a lot more on, on Instagram because yeah. um, it seems a lot friendlier place. I don't go on Twitter because I just find it's just um, keyboard warriors and a lot of people sort of... Just uh, basically, I think it's just people who've got a lot of time on their hands, but haven't really got much going on in their in their life. Um, so I try and sort of stay away from that. And um, yeah, I, do, I mean, there's, a, there's an app called Strava, which no one really knows about, but it's a bit like Twitter, but for people that like to keep fit. So I engage quite a lot on Strava. Yeah. I love going on Strava. You do your runs on there as well, and everything. Yeah, I don't yeah. load up my, my runs because I haven't got a GPS watch. I just run with this. So um, a lot of my runs are only tagged on if somebody else has got a GPS watch and I put that run on um, but otherwise I just like engage with people and stuff like that so yeah I, I kind of stick to them two platforms really and yeah I just yeah and that's it really yeah all right so this has been the disruptive entrepreneur thanks for tuning in everyone on the lives Facebook Instagram Ronnie's mine everyone listening or watching this is for me, being an awesome experience. Yeah. And I always can tell looking at these guys, I often just look at, because they come on Kieran and Harry, yeah. been across 160 odd interviews, yeah. and I always just get a little look. We're gonna go and have a little giggle in oh. the car now about how great this was, <laughs> <laughs> so we are. Um, if there was a burger and lobster here, we'd be celebrating right oh. now, wouldn't we? Um, this has been absolutely brilliant, Ronnie. No, I've loved it. I've Thank loved you very it. much. Thank I'd you. shake your hand if we were allowed, but I'll get sued for that probably. Cool. But, and you'll get a letter from World Snooker. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ronnie. Really yeah, appreciate it. Man. Thanks a lot. Cheers, boys. Thank you. The rap boys. That was brilliant. Yeah, that Thanks right? a lot. Yeah, Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. It was good. Yeah, yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah.